Hello, everyone. I'm Sam, and I'm a college professor, and I teach English. And I'm Katie. And if you're a fan of Allentown Presents, you know me as one of the resident cinephiles. And it's about to get real lit up in here. (laughs) It's already real lit. Let's be real. Yeah, we get fucked up. It's fun. (laughs) Which we never do. So Beowulf, this is what we're doing right now. This is our episode number one. And I decided to do what people consider the most boring thing for our number one for a huge reason so that people stop thinking Beowulf is boring because it's only boring because you've read boring versions of it or you've seen the shitty ass movies. And I'm about to dispel that for you. So I fucking did one of my senior projects on Beowulf. When I was getting my uh, bachelor's, I had um, a medieval lit course in my senior year. And when I was getting my degrees, anytime I had teachers that let me do creative projects instead of actual essays, I went with that shit because I hate essays. Fuck essays. So my medieval lit teacher, teacher, yeah. And I mean, like, you know, they're good essays and like, I can write one if I have to. I just would prefer not to if I don't want to. So like my medieval lit teacher was fucking legit. He was like one of the greatest dudes. Uh, and he's like the probably the reason that when I got my master's, I continued going into medieval literature because first of all, this class, and I had him for a bunch of other fucking classes too, um, my senior year, but this class was all medieval lit and we covered Beowulf. And the only time I had read Beowulf before that was in high school, which is the absolute most stupid idea for high school lit classes to do. I don't understand why they make high schoolers read Beowulf. Not a single thing about someone in high school, even if they're a fucking senior in high school, not a single thing in Beowulf is relatable or interesting whatsoever. <laughs> like, why? So when I read it, I was like, yeah, this sucks. You know, when I was in high school, like, I don't, I don't give a shit about what is happening <laughs> in this entire thing. I had to reread it when I was in my medieval lit class with um, my professor. And like, everything about it changed. We were reading like a better translation of it first of all which does make a difference but like now I've learned about like the medieval stuff going on and like he was just one of those professors that like when he described shit he made it like understandable he was hilarious and like me and my friends like had this thing where we would make uh we called them the Pirello quotes of the day because like in his classes he would just say the funniest shit he was like it it would be like me and you talking like about stuff like that was really how he talked to you when he would be describing stuff to you so it was just funny as fuck and like by the end of it i was like oh my god beowulf is like one of my favorite fucking things now i loved it so i did my fucking senior project on it in that class i loved it so much so i like had to learn all about it and whatnot So sometimes I'll probably insert information into this because I know it, but I'll like try and like remember when I do that to like let people know that it's not technically in the poem. Okay, we're going to start. I need to get my shit together. Beowulf. (laughs) (laughs) Beowulf is the longest old English poem that we have ever discovered for humanity. And it's it's, old uh, as shit, y'all. 
Yeah. It's a West Saxon dialect of Old English, by the way. There are different dialects. So critics, many, many, many critics, like despite their opinions on it, like whatever it is, they all pretty much agree that it is like the most important Old English poem that we have discovered so far. The date of when it was written is super contentious. Uh, Lots of people disagree about when it was written. So the time frame in which people say it is written ranges from as early as 975 AD, so 975 AD, to about 1025 AD. It's a huge 50-year gap. It's a huge gap. And there's like a reason for that. Like they make arguments about like some of the illusions in it and like some of the things that like the poet does with his diction and his word choices and stuff. But we don't need to fucking know about that. They're wrong, by the way. Anyway, in my personal, in my personal opinion, it's actually written probably closer to the 900 date that's given. I think it's probably in like the 980s or something like that. The poem itself is on a manuscript. It's in the Noel Codex which is a compendium of two of the most important Old English manuscripts that we have. The Beowulf poem in particular is on the Cotton Manuscript Vitellius, which is the AXV. It's one of four major Anglo-Saxon poetic manuscripts. And it is now in the British Library, and it is the only surviving copy of the poem that we have. The poet that wrote Beowulf Actually, I say poet, but people actually think it was probably two scribes that wrote it down. The original poet, like we have no way of knowing where this originated from. But we call the poet just anonymous. We just call him Beowulf poet, which is obviously super imaginative. And the poem is set in Scandinavia. It's set in the 6th century, so the 500s AD. There's lots of figures in the poem that are in other Anglo-Saxon manuscripts. There's lots of like battles and there's lots of stories in the poem that are alluded to and discussed. And there's like names dropped. And these are real people and real battles and real stories that have been documented elsewhere that have been, so we've corroborated them. So there's stuff in this that is real. Beowulf himself as a figure, people do not know whether they, it's another contentious thing, like if Beowulf was a real person or if he was like a hero figure that was created out of several other like big warriors and things like that. And I mean, people we're still learning about like how some stuff is is pretty legit and pretty real from the poem like recent archaeological stuff like in Denmark which we know which we've talked about in scholarship we like me and you have like sat around and been like you know Denmark <laughs> Denmark is the the old Scandinavian seat of the shieldings which we'll talk about like in the poem but like in Denmark where that's the modern day place of essentially where most of this poem would be taken place. They've done recent like archaeological excavations that have found halls that were built in the mid 6th century when the time period of the stuff in Beowulf would have been happening where the hall is that a lot of the like action of the poem takes place. There were ones that did exist and we found it. So like we find a bunch of stuff all the time that keeps confirming that the stuff that's going on in Beowulf is real and has like historical roots. 
So the first transcription of the poem from Old English was done by an Icelandic scholar, and his name is, I'm going to fuck this up, sorry for anyone who's Icelandic, Grimur Johnson Thorkelin. Uh, he made the first transcription of the manuscript in 1786. He published the results of his like transcriptions in 1815. He was doing this as part of like the Danish government, like historical research commission. Uh, so he was appointed by the government to start trying to do transcriptions of a bunch of old documents and manuscripts. And now ever since then, it's been translated into at least 23 other languages. There's lots of like favored translations because there's a bunch of different types of translations. The one that's probably the most popular and the most well-known is Seamus Heaney's translation. It's really lyrical um, and so like some there's it's really contentious in scholarship. Some scholars are like super prudes about it and are like he takes too much lyrical liberties with his translation. These words aren't here. He is making it too flowery. But like other people appreciate it because it helps modern readers sort of connect to it more and you know it's a more it's a better experience for a modern reader to hear it the way he does it i personally like it's okay but for my one that i did especially for the review my favorite one the one that i own and the one that i reread here for this episode my translation is by rm liutza who was, I think he was 20, he was 20 something. I have it in my notes later. I'll figure it. When I see it, I'll bring it back up again. But yeah, there's a bunch of translations. And in fact, uh, fun fact, J.R.R. Tolkien is a huge Beowulf fan. Uh, he did his own translation of it, uh, which his son helped to kind of like edit his translation and published it in 2014. Did he uh, translate it into Elvish? <laughs> no, no, he translated it into modern English. At least I, you know, I'm pretty sure from what I remember reading about it. Yeah, his and his son like helped with compiling the rest of it. Uh, and it includes his retelling as well. He wrote his own retelling. Like J.R.R. Tolkien wrote his own like derivative inspired version of Beowulf. It's called Selig Spell. Um, so it's a really huh. interesting read. Yeah, if you ever want to read it. Uh, essentially, people think that like the story of Beowulf probably has origins in like some like mythical stories. So they talk about there's um, a really well-known mythical like Scandinavian like bear son story which is just all about this dude who's a great warrior and he can shape shift into a bear, basically. Um, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Animorphs. <laughs> Absolutely. Animorphs uh, <laughs> from, from the year 900. <laughs> <laughs> just talk about, like, someone gives a Beowulf translation and makes the cover of, like, a Viking that is slowly transforming into a bear on the cover, like Animorphs. I would have read the I would have read the shit out of that in like elementary Absolutely. school. Absolutely, I'd have picked that shit off the hey, shelf. This is your completely. job now. You you have to you have to write a translation of Beowulf <laughs> that is readable to like a nine year old, like a kid <laughs> version of Beowulf. Oh my god, to a nine year old. Oh my god. And okay. then and then and then you got to make it modern. Uh, <laughs> okay. He's <and, laughs> so gonna be an Animorph. <laughs> Yeah, so he'll be an animorph, and we'll just, we'll make the cover, and it'll look fantastic. We'll make millions, maybe. I don't know. But it's a good idea. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Um, noted. I'll write that down. It's been added to my to-do list. 
<laughs> anyway, a bunch of myths, basically. They've connected it to a bunch of myths, including one that is a Welsh, um, like from the Mabinogian, as a Welsh traditional myth, um, which is really interesting because there's some parts that happen in the Mabinogian that are kind of reminiscent in particular of the first beast battle in Beowulf. And that's super interesting because the Mabinogian also has connections to like Arthurian legend and Arthurian tales like King Arthur and stuff like that, um, which is super my wheelhouse. So like, I'm always about that anyway. I'm always excited every time I see that kind of stuff happening. So the manuscript that Beowulf is on has several other medieval texts. It's got um, like a homily of Saint, the homily of St. Christopher. It's got the marvel of the East or the, or the wonders of the East. Um, and it's also got like a bunch of this crazy stuff. Um, so the other stuff on it is like letter, the letter of Alexander to Aristotle. There's like a like an unfinished or like imperfect copy of an old English poetic rendition of Judith, the story of Judith. But the coolest fucking thing, which I had to fucking mention for this, is that there's a bunch of illustrations and like descriptions. It's like a bestiology of a bunch of weird ass medieval beast and monsters, including the fucking types of monsters that you might have heard about. I forget what they're called, but they're creepy as fuck and they're giants, but they're a particular kind of giant. They're cyclopses. They're a particular type of cyclops. They're huge, but they don't have a fucking head. They just have a chest. And in the oh, middle of oh, their oh, chest oh. is a fucking eyeball and a big ass mouth. It is the okay. grossest, weirdest read, thing I've ever heard. Do you read um, the Percy Jackson series? Have you read the Percy Jackson series at all? I know about some of the stuff because my nieces like were super obsessed with it, but I've never read it, no. Okay, so the first Percy Jackson series kind of sucks. It's like the beginning of his thing. It goes through the Greek mythology and it's okay. Um, but the second series is basically you find out that there's a Roman camp as well, a Roman summer camp as well as the Greek summer camp. And okay. they and they collide. Greco-Roman. Yeah. And they collide and you find out, the kids are finding out, or teens I guess at this point, they find out that all the parents, like the godly parents are all the same like you know the um oh, shit. like the the Zeus in the Greek is the same as the Jupiter in the Roman and it, like right, their brother right, right, right. they're they're like half brothers and half sisters of each other right so okay so this in the, soap soap opera shit yeah it's it's actually fucking really cool so in that second <laughs> set of stories in that second set of stories it follows both the Greek heroes or Greek kids that you read about in the first part and yeah. their Roman siblings basically and okay. how the two have to work together to save like, the world. Yeah. Um but there's a point in like the middle of that series I want to say where they come upon that character that you're talking about and it's a whole race of those people who are working mm -hmm. for the bad guys that they have they have to like trick them uh because mm -hmm. they're those dumb a dumb af yeah yeah mm -hmm. they're these stupid monsters as shit. are super stupid <laughs> these but are the have... same type of monsters uh in odyssey uh is the the type of monster that essentially odysseus gets ha tricks eventually i'll probably cover the odyssey at some point on this so like yeah. i won't go into too much detail but yeah they're dumb af that's like one of the things that is like super noted about them in mythology that's super funny yeah, they're just grunts, basically, for the bad guy, and they're <laughs> hella dumb in Percy Jackson, or in the Rick Riordan world, so. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. I'm gonna have to read that shit. Uh, I wanted to read it for a while, I'm just 
lazy um, and awful. the Percy Jackson the first set is like uh you're gonna have to read it because it's like a prequel mm. and it tells you all the stuff but I'm yeah. gonna tell you right now it is horribly written like it was <laughs> like like the first Percy Jackson story is very clearly the very first thing that he ever wrote. Right, right. Like, and he was like, can, "How to write? Do not." And know. you can you can see it like <laughs> like as like it was. I reread it, so I read the whole series, and then I went back and I started to reread it again. And when I reread it again, I was like, "Fuck, dude! Like this is so this bad. Is awful. I'm, you got so much better. You got so much better right. as time went on, but like." This first, these first couple of books are a hard. That's always a fun thing. That's always a fun thing too, though, for me. Like when I go back and read stuff that I enjoyed when I was a kid, and like if they're still writing stuff, or if they've written, if they wrote more stuff, like as their career went on, and I can go back and I can reread and I can see the progression. Like I love doing that because, like when I when we eventually do Twilight, like I cannot resist doing the Twilight Saga, eventually. Like that was the same thing. Like when I went back and was rereading them, I was like, oh my god, Stephanie Meyer, like this shit is not the business. Yeah. It's not good. Like the story's still good for me, but the writing is just not there. Yeah. But then you watch as like each book that she writes gets a little better. And then she writes like the host or, or um, like in the middle of that too. And the host is actually really not that badly written. Um, there's still like some areas where I'm like, oh, okay. But like, it's not that badly written. And so like when you look at like Twilight, which was like her first thing and you compare it to things like the host, you're like, why couldn't you have just like banged out some other shit that nobody yeah. would care about for a few books first? before he started writing Twilight. I feel like, at least in Rick Riordan's case, I feel like his first series, like, he knew the audience he was aiming for, but underestimated Mm. their ability to read what he wanted to write. Mm, Um, Okay. Because, like, his series are all for, like, tweens like right tweens and ya like he doesn't go super deep into the like here's some sexual shit and here's like he it's none of that it's not like nuance and subtlety and things like that not not too much but you can definitely see um from the start where percy jackson where the his first series started to where my favorite series well my favorite series that he's done so he if you don't know um anything about him Basically, he writes these sagas about, that's like a modern retelling of ancient cultures, gods. Nice. So he's got the Greek gods. He does a Greek mythology one. He does a Roman mythology one. He does a Norse god one. He does an Egyptian god one. And it like goes through all these different things and they interact with the different gods. They're all like the kids of gods because right you know and if you know oh, yeah. anything about gods the gods were, gods were running around having sex with slutty. humans left and right <laughs> like it was a goddamn fuck. orgy back then yeah i have no idea how there are not more like surviving oh there's so many magical creatures <laughs> yeah in this world. it's because they're hidden according to rick riordan 
You should read the books. But I feel like in Percy Jackson, he was like, okay, I'm writing this book for kids. It has to be dumb. Like it has to be written stupidly because kids are dumb. And then you get to his later one, the Norse mythology one, the Magnus Chase one, and it is beautifully written. There's these characters who have like all of this different, um, all these different things going on with their lives. They're not just one dimensional. Like there's a character. So there's a a child of Loki and Mm. Loki, Loki, is a shapeshifter he can uh, change from boy to girl it doesn't matter man beast whatever his kid is the same and is also gender fluid i was gonna say like please tell me he makes this like non-binary kid okay i'm so happy that's awesome yeah so loki's kid in the story is gender fluid and every day, like basically at their will, chooses whether it's a boy whatever or a girl in be. the morning. Like they're they're whatever they are in the morning, and they can switch. Like because they have the ability to, they can switch how they feel, how they present, or whatever. And it's really cool because as awesome. as the rest of the characters in the book get to know Alex, the the kid, they mm-hmm. begin to realize, like without even saying anything, oh, this is a boy day oh, this is a girl day. Like, right. they can feel it in with Because they characters. know, they, they're knowing the person, like, as, yeah, they're, as they are and not as some sort of arbitrarily, you know, imposed upon image of, like, what a gender is. Yeah, That's no, wonderful. It's, it's really, really good. Sorry. Huge person. No, you're good. Tangent. No, I started it. <laughs> I started it with the fucking, oh, yeah, with like, dumbass cyclops. Yes. Who are stupid AF. But like okay. I read that and I was like, oh my God, those are fucking terrifying. Every time I learn about those when I am in scholarship in medieval, I'm just always like, oh my God, those are disgusting. And I 100% believe that they were real. And I 100% am simultaneously jealous that I was not born in a time where they simultaneously existed with me because I want to see them in the flesh. And then I am also very glad that I was not born because I would lose my mind. Anytime I saw that, I'd be like, this is disgusting. I am dead now. It's just rendered me dead. So it's time. Let's dive into fucking Beowulf. 2013. There it is. I finally found this stuff. The lead to translation is from 2013. So this is Beowulf. And Beowulf starts, it's talking about a like bygone era, basically, of warriors. It's talking about this guy who's essentially named Shield in modern language. That's essentially what his name translates to. So he's a great warrior. He like comes from nowhere, basically, I guess, like no one knows where the hell he came from. And when he dies, they send him off um, with a Viking's funeral into the sea. And they're like, yeah, he was a good king. That's how Beowulf starts, by the way. So, like, not a great beginning, poet. You know, like, if you're trying to, like, hook a reader, maybe you could have started in a different fashion. So, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s son is named Beowulf. But this is not our Beowulf of this story. Which is, again, just not a good call. Confusing as fuck, right? Our poet was just not thinking about this. They were clearly, and this will happen, this will crop up in other parts of the story, that the poet was writing very clearly, intending it to be for an audience who knew a bunch of the information and the stories that they were alluding to at the time. So they wouldn't explain stuff because they were clearly assuming that their audience already knew 
what was going on because they had heard that story before. And this is like one of those times, like he's talking about Beowulf and he clearly expects you to know that this is not our Beowulf. No, no, this was S.H.I.E.L.D.'s son Beowulf or whatever the fuck. Yeah. And so the poet is like, yeah, he was cool too. S.H.I.E.L.D. was a Dane. This is weird. This is very, very weird. Because eventually, when we get the real Beowulf, they compare him to S.H.I.E.L.D. a lot. And Beowulf is not a Dane. But anyway, so after S.H.I.E.L.D.'s son, the not our Beowulf, um, we get Hilfdene, or Hilfdin, probably. Sorry, I'm trying to remember my old English lessons. <laughs> Hilfdin is not our Beowulf's son. And he has four kids. And one of those kids is Rothgar. And he has two other brothers, and then he has a sister. But there's a part of the poem that is missing here. We all assume that it's this um, woman named Ursi, who is a Swedes ki- Swedish king's sister later on. His name is Onella. Remember that. Remember that for later because it's really interesting. It's a connection for later. Anyway, Rothgar, he is a great king. He eventually becomes king after his dad. And he makes his his hall, his like like a community center, essentially. The place where like he and all his fucking soldiers hang out and like everyone can come and like hang out with the court and like eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, he calls it Herat, which is old English for like heart, which is like an adult male deer. So he is a deer clan if you're a Game of Thrones fan. He would have the deers on him on his like shield or whatever. He makes his hall when he's king. He's you know, being a great king, everything's cool. Unfortunately, where Rothgar lives, there is this like marsh, lake, watery area. And in this area, unfortunately, a demon lives. This demon is named Grendel. He is a demon that hates the sound of joy. (laughs) So like, if you're partying it up and you're happy, he is just like, oh my God, please shut the fuck up. I want to murder all of you right now. Which honestly, just to me, sounds like my husband (laughs) and me. Like if I'm in my house at night and my neighbors are partying it the fuck up and I'm listening to them just like laughing and I can hear their fucking music. Like I'm pissed off as fuck too, because like, bitch, shut the fuck up. Some people are trying to sleep. So in my opinion, this makes Grendel really fucking relatable, but apparently he's a demon and he hates the sound of joy. So Grendel is my favorite character in this whole story. <laughs> so Grendel is out there. He like is listening to Rothgar who's built his fucking hall next to his house and is now just partying it up day and night. And Grendel is like, these bitches will not shut the fuck up. I'm so mad about it. He's apparently, he's connected at this point in the poem to like Cain, like Cain and Abel. He's part of Cain's ill. So this, there's like a part here in the poem that infers that um, all like elves and dwarves and giants and all those strange beasts and shit that we learn about in mythology are all Cain descended. They're all condemned because of that, basically, Um, which is interesting because it kind of it alludes that the scribe that was writing this was probably a Christian scribe. So a bunch of the like Christian sort of allusions or Christian like connections that you can make were probably not part of the original poem here. They were probably 
added by the scribe who transcribed this in the 900s and probably not part of the original thing but here's grendel he's like i can't fucking take this shit anymore you guys are too loud i hate that you're having so much fun and i can't fucking sleep so he comes at night finally and he kills a shit ton of rothgar's men this happens because in this day and age uh, the big hall, like a king's hall, is where all of his like army men and stuff sleep. They always sleep there ready for battle, essentially. Just ready in, in case they're needed. They're all together. And then the surrounding buildings of the hall are for like their family, for other people, for the king, um, like when he wants to come and visit the hall and he's not at his castle or whatever. Anyway, he comes and because all of... Rothgar's men are sleeping in the same fucking building. He kills just a shit ton of Rothgar's men because he is like, I'm sick and tired of you guys fucking my nights up. <laughs> and yep, let me fucking sleep. Yes. And he doesn't just do this one night, he does it the next night. And he does it again and again and he get and again. And he's even going to outer houses like now, not just the main hall to like kill other people in the other houses because he's just so fucking done. He does this for 12 years. Like every night for 12 fucking years, this you dude is thought. killing everyone. At this point, I'm like, how are you guys not all dead? <laughs> how are you? Why are they? Dead? Why are they still living there? Yes. Why the fuck are they still what? being loud as shit? Like, Yes. Shut the fuck up. You got what you deserved. Like, I'm trying to teach you a lesson. How have you not like, learned the lesson yet? Just shut the fuck <laughs> up and you'll be all right. Maybe don't sleep in that hall that you keep having to like clear bodies out of every morning. Like maybe for fucking real for 12 years. <laughs> like, absurd. <laughs> I found the name of that monster. What the is one it? With the, it's called a Blemier. A Blemier. <laughs> That's such a fancy-ass name for such a dumb-ass monster. Yeah, so it has its face is in the middle of its chest. It doesn't have mm -hmm. a head. The history on it is actually kind of interesting. The Blemier were an African tribe of headless men native to Libya and Ethiopia. Oh, their shit. Their faces were on their chests, and their name translates literally to chest eyes. In addition what? to <laughs> In addition to ancient depictions... Blemier were popular in medieval bestiary. That's I don't know insane. What, I don't know what bestiary is, but sure, why not? Uh, bestiary is um, a compendium of, it's like an encyclopedia, but just about creatures. Oh, okay. So the appearance of them, Blemier have broad shoulders covered in hair and ears mm -hmm. beneath their armpits. Their most defining feature is their chest face on their upper chest with where their no pecs shit. where their pecs would be. They have two large bulging eyes. Large noses protrude from their sternum uh, and across their abdomens are curving mouths lined with white teeth like playing cards. When they talk, seeing their mouths moving creates, creates a hypnotic effect. What? Yeah. So they're running around like hypnotizing you. Basically, when That's they talk to you, terrifying. Because, because their mouths are fucking horrific. They disguise themselves as mortals by using metal heads attached to their shoulders uh, by tape <laughs> and bobby pins. This is specifically in the Rick Riordan books. This is um, amazing. 
Yeah, their heads are capable of mimicking facial movements, though they're easily detached. While wearing normal clothing, Blemier's <laughs> chest faces cause their bellies to appear lumpy. <laughs> and I bet yeah. they fucking move if you're watching. They're like they're trying to fucking talk to you, but their voice is coming out of their fucking mouth and their stomach. So like their shirt is just like moving around every time they move. <laughs> yeah. So they have. I love their, everything about this. Their special powers include superhuman strength, superhuman endurance, and they have limited disease immunity. They have terrible. Okay, so they can get sick and like die super easy. Yeah, they have terrible depth perception, and <laughs> I bet. They're, they're overly polite no matter what the situation is, so that's what fucks them up, apparently. That's weird. That's yeah. actually the weirdest thing that you've said to me so far. The fact that they're so monstrous, and yet they're polite. Could you fucking imagine this monstrosity of a creature walking up to you with teeth like fucking playing cards hypnotizing your dumbass like listen to my voice how are you doing today you yeah. seem like you're a little stressed can i take your coat <laughs> yeah so so they rarely have ideas on their own because like we've said they're dumb as fuck and they resort to obeying others, so they're easily, like, manipulated into being whoever else's pawns, Henchmen, yeah. Yeah. They're tone-deaf and colorblind. They can't discern colors and mostly disguise themselves, you know, by pretending to be mortals. Um, <laughs> with their easily ripped-off heads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so with them being overly polite, uh, no matter the situation, they take politeness as a priority. Even if threatening someone, they will still talk in a very polite manner. This behavior can also be exploited to confuse, avoid, or defeat a blemier. Good day, sir. I said good day. Yeah. So I'm sure some of that is like Rick Riordan's like... That's amazing. His version of it. Uh, and the way that he decided to depict them, but some of that was actually like the true. I am a, I am a better person behind. for knowing the shit that you just <laughs> told me. Like I don't know how I survived without knowing that. To be perfectly honest, and now I do, and my life is complete. Wow, I'm so happy right now. Okay, <laughs> so Rothgar is fucked up because Grendel has been killing his fucking people for twelve fucking years, which is crazy. So, our Beowulf. Now we meet our Beowulf. Finally. He is a nephew of the Gidish king. Geet. The Gidish king, Helak, or Hijalak, or Hijalak, but probably in Old English it would be Helak. He it, hears about what is going on across the fucking sea in Dane territory and, like, Rothgar's shit. And he is like, I want to fucking help this dude. So he gets a bunch of like people that are ready for adventure. And they're like, all right, let's go like fucking see what's going on over here in Danish territory. Because this sounds fucking weird. And they sail over. They go to the Danish coast. But Alcohol. the Coast Guard is like, <laughs> who the, f like, whoa. He just sees this huge boat of like random ass soldiers all prepared for battle sailing up to their coast so of course he's like whoa 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 who the fuck are y'all <laughs> like uh 
can I help you? And Beowulf is like, no, 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 no. You know what? I'm sorry. I should have thought about that. Uh, we do look really intimidating. No, no, no. We're here. We're cool. Um, Edge Theo is my, my father. I'm Beowulf. My dad was named Edge Theo. Do you remember him? He says this because, just FYI, Edge Theo, who is Beowulf's father, according to this poem, he is a prominent character in Norse mythology. Ejtheau has a huge reputation of being a great hero and a great warrior, but he's not a great-ass father, just FYI. Spoiler alert. They never are, as it turns out. They never are. (laughs) But he's like, you remember, you know, you know Ejtheau, the great warrior. I'm his son. We're, We're here to help. We come in peace. Uh, so the Coast Guard is like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, whatever. Um, are you, You're going to go see Rothgar then, right? Uh, here's a guide. Um, this guide will take you to Herat. So the guide takes them to Herat, uh, and then the guide is like, peace out. I got to go back to the coast. So they approach the gate, and then the gatekeeper is like, who the fuck are you? And like the whole thing repeats itself, basically. And the gatekeeper is like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I know who you are. He's like, I'm going to go tell Rothgar and I'll tell you what he says. He goes to Rothgar and tells him and he says to Rothgar, hey, you should listen to these dudes. They look like swole AF. They look like they can handle their shit. Like maybe they can help us. So Rothgar is like, you know what? I recognize him. I knew his dad. Like I haven't just heard of his dad. Like I know his dad because we learn here a little bit of history of kind of like how the Gidish people, who's Beowulf's people and Rathgar's people who are the Danish, how they're kind of like connected and stuff. And the most important thing that we learn here is that Helak, who is Beowulf's king back in Geatland, his sister was Ejtheal's wife at one point, the like Norse mythological warrior. And so she bore Beowulf. And that is why Beowulf is a Geat, because Helak, the Geatish king, is his uncle, essentially. And Ejtheau, the Norse mythological warrior, was his dad, uh, sired him. So anyway, Rothgar is like, like, I fucking knew his dad. I know who this is. Yeah, let him in. So they go in, they let him in. They're like, uh, yeah, come in, but like, please leave your weapons and like your armor and shit, just in case you can never be too careful. Like, please uh, put your overcoats, canes and top hats in the doorway type of shit. And Beowulf comes in with his people. He comes up to Rothgar. He's like, hey, we heard you got a demon problem. Um, you know me. I'm a warrior. I like to fucking fight people. I've killed tribes of giants i've killed a bunch of sea monsters and shit you know my stories i don't gotta tell you so like i'm here i've heard you've had this problem with grendel uh let me kill grendel for you me and my men can do this i won't even use weapons like i won't even be armed so you can be you can rest assured that like i'm not here as like an ambush or something i'm not gonna like wake up in the middle of the night and like kill all of your soldiers we'll disarm ourselves i'll kill this dude bare fucking handed but like let me kill this dude for you i'm ready he's like super chill beowulf's vibe is super chill in this speech it's he's even like joking about his death like several points in this speech fun fact he mentions like as the weird would have it for me whether i live or die and weird is an old english word for fate 
And it is literally what the etymology, the study yeah. of um, the like root of words and stuff. Weird, the old English word for fate is where we get the modern English word weird, like strange, weird, so weird. That's where we get that word from. So back then mm. when you said weird, it would mean fate. It's just like a cool little thing because he like mentions it like over and over again in his speech. Like huh. fate says, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Fate says like, no, nah, you can kill him. You're going to kill him. He's like, I'm here. I'm ready to lay down my life basically, which is like insane. But he's apparently all for it. So Rothgar is like, you know what, kid? I remember you. You know, your dad killed someone for me when we were in battle one time. I had to pay his like man. Uh, he had to pay a wear guild. So a wear guild is essentially like if you kill someone, you either are open legally when it comes to the Scandinavians. You're legally open to being killed by the owner essentially of that man so the king himself or their kinsmen they're allowed to kill you back because you stole their life from them and that's essentially like a property thing or you can pay the kingdom for that man that you killed and that's called a wear guild he was like i remember your dad was fighting for me one time he killed a dude that he shouldn't have killed i paid his wear guild for him and he swore an oath to me so I'm assuming that you're here to pay back your dad's debt. So, okay, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you fight this demon for me. Hang out here like one of my own, you know, we're going to have our feast like normal tonight and then we're going to go to sleep. I'm not going to helicopter parent this shit for you. Like we haven't seen you and your people in a long ass time anyway. So let's fucking just like party it up tonight and I'll let you and your men fight this demon. Cool. So they are like, awesome. They throw a party. This dude named Unferth, which literally translated means not peace. <laughs> so like the dude that everyone hates apparently, but he's apparently a good warrior. And he is actually apparently, this is supported in other instances in the poem, favored by Rothgar, the king. So he's apparently a good warrior, even though people don't like him like whatsoever. This guy named Unferth during the party is like, hey, Beowulf, ain't you that dude that got, like, whipped once by that other, like, hero swimmer guy? I remember hearing this story. Like, you fucking got your ass whipped. You're probably going to bomb on this. Like, why are you even here? You're probably not going to help us at all. Beowulf is like, actually, hello, bitch. Um, that's not at all what happened. But you know what? I'll, like tell you because I'm the better man and I can like be cool about this so what really happened was me and that dude were good friends we had like planned to like go swimming together and we got separated and that's my whole story which you probably fucking heard about when I like killed all of these sea monsters you know so that's what really happened you're just jealous man that's okay I understand. I can recognize that you're jealous. It's cool. Uh, and by the way, you like once killed your own brother by accident. So like you can go fuck yourself. You're just upset because you ain't been able to handle Grendel. And now I'm here and I'm going to handle your fucking shit for you. So like an old timey pissing contest. It is literally a fucking old timing pissing contest. It's so stupid. It has like nothing to do with anything, but this is what happens. So 
Rothgar's like watching this and he just finds it hilarious. He's just like laughing his ass off that like his like favorite warrior basically is like getting his ass handed to him by Beowulf. Uh in the party after this, too, his wife, his, uh, the queen, her name is Welteau, she comes out, she parties with everyone, and Beowulf promises her as well, like, personally, you know what, I'm going to win this or I'm going to die trying for you, you know, queen, like, I promise. And she's, like, super happy about that. So all of the Danish people retreat. They only leave the Giedish people and Beowulf, his people, here in the hall. He takes off all of his shit. He gets buck ass naked. Like this is one thing that the awful like tw- 2000s movie gets right. He strips his ass bus naked. He has no weapon. He has no armor. Naked as the day he was born. And they all lay down to sleep. Okay. They're waiting. Grendel comes. Grendel is here to do the same thing he's been fucking doing for all 12 years now. He eats some dude as he comes in and he comes up to Beowulf and Beowulf is like playing asleep. So he's like, all right, this shit is fucking, you know, naked, like, cool. I don't have to crunch through armor. So he reaches out to Beowulf and Beowulf springs. He reaches up and grabs the dude's arm. So now they have a huge wrestling match basically because Beowulf doesn't have anything on him. He doesn't have a fucking weapon. He doesn't have armor. He doesn't have anything. It's him and this fucking monster. So they're wrestling it out, basically. Uh, And it mentions here in the poem that the sounds during this entire fight, it sounds so raucous and loud that the people in, like, the farther outhouses who don't know what's going on, they're like, man, the, like, party is going really late tonight. (laughs) Like, they're just, like, partying it up in there. (laughs) So... Essentially what happens, long, long, dumbass battle, is he's wrestling Grendel. His dudes get up to try and help him, like, because they're all there to help gang up on the dude, and they all have their swords and stuff. But as they're trying to fight him, they learn really quickly why the Danish people have had a hard time with this guy. Apparently, they're trying to kill him with, like, their swords and shit, but their weapons are just bouncing off him. Like, he's basically cursed himself and his skin so that you can't kill him with, like, mortal weapons. Weapons won't touch him. So now they're like, well, shit, we can't fucking help Beowulf. So he's just wrestling the shit out of Grendel. And finally, Beowulf does not fucking let go. And Grendel lets Beowulf rip his fucking arm off so that he can get away. He rips his fucking arm off and runs away like a bitch. And Beowulf is like, here's the dude's fucking arm. He's not coming back from that. (laughs) Like, this is his, like, death blow. There's no way he's going to survive losing his fucking arm to me right now. So he's dead. Everyone is excited. So when the morning comes and all of the Danish people come in, they're like, oh, shit. Like, you really ripped Grendel's arm off? And they even, like, go out and they themselves the danish people like follow the trail to see like where the trail of blood leads to like make sure that grendel's dead and it leads to his march it's all bloody and gory and they're like oh yeah based on this scene like there's no way fucking grendel survived this shit he's fucking dead he really is dead so they come back to herat they party hard all day like bards are telling stories about old 
famous fighters and monsters. They're doing like night games or like racing horses and shit. And the king comes with like an entourage and he's just like, thank you so much. You are incredible. I thought we'd never be free. So you know what? You're like a son to me now. Like, I love you, dude. And Beowulf is like, thanks. You know, I wanted to help you. Like I, you know, I didn't come here for the fucking glory. I came here cause I just wanted help. And like, I wish you could have been there to see him. Like, I wish you could have been there to help defeat him with me. Like you deserve that. I, I also wish that I could have kept him down. So I could have kept his body here for you so that you could be sure. But you know, like his arm, you know, I got his arm at the very least and he's not coming back from that. So, you know, I got you. Even Unferth, the, the not peace guy, he's impressed at this. Everyone is like looking at the fucking arm that he's taken off of Grendel and they're like, oh, what the fuck? This is like a monster's arm. This is weird. They clean up the hall. They have another big ass fucking feast and party that night. Rothgar gives Beowulf like a ton of gifts he gives all his men gifts. He pays reparation for the soldier that Grendel ate before he came to Beowulf. They sing a whole bunch about war stories again. This is where we get the first of what we call like the digressions in this story. This is the Finn digression. This is really strange. The poet weaves these tales in and it's really weird. So we learn in this like war story that like a singer or a bard basically is telling us that this guy named Finn, who's a Frisian, he had a wife. His wife's brother came to visit them one time and Finn attacked them, like ambushed them. And there was this huge bloody battle that happened, but it was so bad and like so many of the people died and it just wasn't going to end. So eventually the survivors made a truce. And they were like, let's just stop this at this point because uh, this was way harder than we fucking thought, basically, on the Frisian side. So, like, let's just, like, call a truce. The people that were left over from her, her family, her, like, brother's people who were coming to visit her, um, they hang out in the same area with them, like, part of the truce. But as years go on, they get really resentful, essentially. And so they eventually take revenge for that crazy ass battle and they bring her back to her homeland after they kill her husband that's the Finn digression it's really fucking weird nobody fucking knows why it's in there <laughs> um but it is so after they talk about this story Waltheow Rothgar's wife we're in the present again <laughs> finally and she comes out and she's got like some things to say to Rothgar she's like hey, babe, um, like, this is cool. Let's have a party and shit. Like, I get it. Grendel's dead. But, like, I heard that you were, like, talking shit about, like, how Beowulf is your son. Uh, he's not your fucking real kid. You're not going to be a fucking douche to our actual sons. I'm just here to fucking remind you. You're going to get these hands if you, like, do our sons wrong when you die. So, like, don't be running around getting all drunk and talking about Beowulf being your fucking son. Okay? Okay. And she goes to Beowulf after this. And she gives Beowulf a bunch more gifts and talks to him now. And she's like, Beowulf, you're, you know, you're a cool dude. Like, thank you so much for like helping our people. I just want you to be good to my sons. We'll be good to you if you are good to us, basically. Remember who really runs this shit. I know my husband talks a game, but I really run this shit. So like, be good to my sons and 
you'll be taken care of too. And Beowulf is like, absolutely, I got you, queen. So <laughs> they're all laying down now. They're passing the fuck out because they don't think there's any danger anymore. Apparently, there is danger because suddenly Grendel has a mom. And Grendel's mom bursts into the hall this night. She's pissed because her son's dead now, obviously. She catches everyone off guard. She, like, didn't want to come in and murder everyone. She just wanted, like, like, she came there basically as, like, an emotional fit. Like, she just wanted to cause some fucking mayhem because she was pissed. So she comes in, causes a little bit of mayhem, takes off, takes the fucking dude with her, um, and she kills him and, like, takes his body. She runs back off to, like, her fucking marsh. The king is devastated because apparently the dude that she took is, like, one of his like right hand guys like one of his bffs basically so they wake code up word for code word for lover <laughs> right let's be real <laughs> let's think about the time period that we're absolutely in. no this was, literally absolutely this was his in fact i'm not sho- i'm shocked that there's not more literature about the fact that that rothgar gets super fucking upset about this guy leaving because absolutely it's a huge like theme and like medieval stuff that this happens that a king or a warrior or whatever has a bff and their death makes them so upset or so pissed that they're just inconsolable that they lose control yeah when that happens 100 percent of the time it's because they were lovers Mm -hmm. and they're losing you know they just lost the love of their life or whatever like they're behind closed doors love Mm -hmm. that they can't talk about I mean, back in those days, they talked about it because they didn't give a fuck, and every right. like sexuality but, but was much Christian more. But the Christian people who were transcribing all of this stuff would leave that shit out. Oh they yeah, they took all, the all that stuff out. Yes, yeah. So no, I'm definitely there. I feel you. Yes, obviously it's his fucking lover, but according to the <laughs> poet who transcribed it, it's yeah. his BFF. <laughs> so Rothgar is just fucking devastated. He wakes up Beowulf because Beowulf had been given, um, like, a better place to rest. He wasn't resting in the meat hall because he's not, like, Rothgar's soldier. So he was off in one of the other fucking buildings. So they wake Beowulf up and bring him, and Beowulf's like, what I miss? What the fuck? What's happened? Rothgar is like, okay, listen, uh, I didn't talk to you about this before because, like, I didn't think it was fucking relevant, but Grendel has a mom. Like, we know Grendel had a mom but like she's never attacked us or whatever. So we didn't think How? this was like a problem. <laughs> yes, yes. How yes. is that not fucking relevant information? That's what I'm fucking saying. Why did he not mention this before? Oh but my he's God. like, so listen, he's got a mom. We've definitely seen her, but we, she's never heard us before. So like, we didn't think to like tell you anything about this, but now she's come and she's killed my fucking boy. Uh, I'm not about this. Uh, I know where they fucking live. It's not a great place. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a fucking crazy ass place. There's a bunch of monsters there. It's not the business, but this was my fucking boy. I'm not dealing with this. He's going to be avenged. Please go kill that bitch for me. For killing my dude. I will reward you like a gazillion times more if you do this for me than I just did today for killing Grendel. And Beowulf is like, 
absolutely i'm super down let's go hey you know rothgar don't mourn okay i'll be getting revenge for your boy let's go fuck some sea monsters up like let's go troops they go they have a long ass journey it's hella scary they come up to the lake marsh whatever thingy it's like a fucking sight apparently when they get there the soldier uh rothgar's bff quote unquote his head just his head is on the shore, just like chilling there. And a bunch of sea monsters are like rolling around and there's a bunch of gore everywhere. They come up, there's like, they're just like, what the fuck is this place? Most of the sea monsters, when the Geet people come up, are like, oh shit, it's some people, like, let's get at. And the Geets like try and fight some of them. They kill like a big sea monster apparently here. They're like, what the fuck kind of place is this? Basically, they're like, We've never been to this type of place before. What the fuck? This place is fucked. <laughs> okay, so Beowulf is like, all right, I'm ready. Unferth has come with him. Like some of the, the people, Rothgar and some of the Danish people have come with them too, by the way. And Unferth is there. So Beowulf's like, all right, I'm ready to go. Unferth is like, oh, hey, dude, take my sword. I, I don't want to come with you because I ain't about to die. <laughs> But take my sword, which, fun fact, is called runting, which is Old English for thrusting, which is just so phallic. I can't describe. So appropriate for... Absolutely appropriate. Unferth is like, I I would like to thrust my penis into you. Wait, no, I'm sorry. Here's my sword. That's what I meant. Here's my sword. Sword. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sword. That's what we're talking about. (laughs) So Beowulf's like, okay, cool, thanks. Uh, All right, people, I'm gonna go. So remember, if I die, Rothgar, take care of my dudes. Send my king, Helilak, the stuff that you gifted me. And uh, you know what, Unfriz? You my boy. Like, you get my weapons and stuff if I die too. So he's like, whatever, let's fucking go. He swims down. It takes him a whole damn ass day to get to the bottom of this fucking thing. And I'm like, how are you alive at this point? He can swim for a day? What? Yeah. What but apparently he swims for a whole ass day and he's not dead and he gets to the bottom. Grendel's mom is down there. She's like, ooh, look, it's a fucking snack. She grabs his ass. She's like trying to like pierce him with her claws when she grabs him. But his armor is good as shit, apparently. She can't pierce it. So she's like, ugh, whatever. I'll just take you back home so I can, like, strip this shit off you, and then I'll eat you. So she drags him down to her, like, lair. As she's dragging him down, all these, like, sea monsters and shit are just, like, beating the shit out of him as she's, like, dragging his ass down into, like, the depths. But they can't obviously pierce his armor, so they're not like killing him. But they're just like, like bop, I guess they're just like dragging him around and just like bopping his ass as they like, as he like <laughs> wades by. So they're down. Now they're in this underwater cave. Literally, it like takes great pains in the poem to describe that they are now in a what is called a battle hall, but it is underwater and. He is like, haha, you fucking thought I was just a snack. I'm here to fucking murder you, bitch. He swipes his sword at her, the sword that Unferth gave him. The sword just bounces off her head like a fucking bouncy ball. Of course it does. <laughs> and he's like, okay. 
I guess that's not gonna work. So he tosses Unferth's fucking sword aside. And he's like, you know what? I killed your fucking son with my bare hands. I guess I'll fucking kill you with my bare hands too. And she's like, that's what super a cocky cute. son of a bitch. Yeah, she's like, that's super cute. And she like throws his ass on the ground and is on top of him and pulls out a knife and tries to stab him in the fucking neck. He only is saved again by his armor. And it's described in the poem that like, he's a lucky son of a bitch that because he was on the ground, his armor hiked up a little bit. And that's the only reason she didn't plunge that fucking knife into his neck. So he's alive and he looks to his like side basically. And he sees this big, huge giant sword. I say giant sword, meaning not that it's just a very abnormally large sword, but apparently the poet is like, no, no, this is a sword that is literally for a giant. Like a giant made this sword like when they were fighting God and shit and it's on the wall, just FYI. It's basically the size of Beowulf himself. Jesus. <laughs> and Beowulf it's is like- It's like a Final Fantasy style sword. Legit, legit. Like those ones that are just like, this takes that up is, my whole back. Yes. If I stood this up, it is actually taller than me. That is how big this fucking sword is. So Beowulf is like, I bet that will fucking slice her head off. He grabs it. He swings it. And he's right. It slices her fucking head off. And he's like, yes. (laughs) And he's so happy. He looks around the fucking place and he sees Grendel's body on like a couch off to the side, I guess, in this battle hall. And he's like, I'm a slice this fucking asshole's head off too and he slices his head off so listen the blood apparently of grendel when he slices this dude's head off it's so hot that it melts the fucking blade of the giant sword that beowulf has what i have no words for what the fuck this is supposed to be but the blade is gone now because grendel's blood has melted it the only thing that is left is the hilt of the sword. So That's Beowulf, weird. It's, it's so weird that Grendel's blood would melt the sword, but mm-hmm. not the mom's blood, even though the mom is clearly alive yes. when, he gets, make, when he gets murdered. And he, it doesn't make any ass sense, like not a single lick of sense. But the hilt, the hilt is the only thing that's left. So Beowulf is like, all right, I'm going to take this hilt. I'm going to take Unfrith's blade and I'm gonna uh, take Grendel's head. So he takes all that shit and he starts swimming back up. So now we get a meanwhile, (laughs) we get a meanwhile moment from the poet and he's all back on the fucking shore this whole time. Everyone has been sitting here waiting for Beowulf. Uh, It's been nine fucking hours at this point, at least. And they're like, he's fucking dead. Like he's dead. So Rothgar and his people have gone back home but his Gidish people, the people that are his kinsmen, are still there waiting because, you know, they just aren't going to abandon him. They want proof. Beowulf comes out. They're like, hey, oh shit, you fucking came back. And he's like, yeah, I fucking did. Look at this fucking big ass demon head. So they put this demon head on a spike, but it's so big that when they're trying to carry it around on a spike, it takes more than, like, two guys to do it. And it's so fucking heavy, even besides that, that by the time they're walking around and shit and they get back to Rothgar's place, it's so heavy that they've stopped carrying it on the spike. 
<laughs> and they've just started dragging it on the ground like by his hair or something. <laughs> Mess. And this is apparently a fucking sight for the Danish people. Like, they're watching them as they're, like, dragging this dude's head on the ground, and they're just like, what the actual fuck? Anyway, Beowulf comes back to Rathgar, and he's like, here you go, my man. Uh, I killed the mom, too. Uh, You're truly safe this time. Here's Grendel's head. Here's the hilt of this sword uh, that was the reason that I killed the mom and shit like i don't know where the fuck that sword came from and the blade's gone now but here's the hilt rothgar by the way unfirth yeah you know i tried to use your sword but it just like didn't fucking work but like you know what don't worry about it that doesn't mean anything about your sword it's a great sword it just was not up to the task this time i guess sorry so we learn that the hilt of the sword is carved apparently um with the story of how god the christian god apparently slayed all of the giants by drowning them in the sea it's like a sad ass story and it's carved onto the hilt rothgar is like holy shit like you're amazing cannot thank you enough you know what our people you you know our scandinavian ass people we've had some shit kings you know being a king can suck power corrupts basically like it's always a king's downfall beowulf i can tell you're going to be a great ass king someday so you know what don't be a fool okay if i can help you in one regard be humble remember when you're a king someday because you're gonna be a king i'm telling you you're just that fucking good don't be a shit-tastic king be a good king be humble Remember that, like, don't let the power go to your head. Let people help you. You know, take me as an example. If I hadn't let you help me, I'd still be fucking dealing with Grendel. You know what I'm saying? Don't be one of those proud-ass, awful kings. Anyway, let's just have a fucking party. Let's fucking go. Tomorrow I'll give you some gifts and you can go home. So they party, but (laughs) their party is very short because everyone is just wiped the fuck out at this point they're all so fucking tired that they're just like woo party but they only party for like an hour and then they're like "Mm, we're gonna go to bed (laughs) so they go to bed and the next morning beowulf and the geats are ready to go home beowulf gives unferth back his sword he goes back to rothgar and is like, we're going to go back home now. We love you, man. Uh, you got friends in our kingdom. Hey, if you ever need help again, let us know. We'll be here. You know, if you and your sons are ever in our area, fucking look us up. We'll party. You're welcome there. Rothgar is like, I told you this last night. You're a fucking great dude, Beowulf. I'm going to miss you. Like, you know, our people are going to have a peace for a long ass time because of this. I promise you that. And I, like I said last night, someday you're going to be fucking king. So uh, they hug. Rathgar's like crying because apparently he like is having this like feeling that even though they're talking about like seeing each other again, Rothgar kind of feels like he's probably never going to see Beowulf again. So he's like sobbing his ass off. Um, but Beowulf doesn't get the vibe and he's just like, okay. And they fucking leave. So they go home. Now we finally are in Geatland, which is Beowulf's homeland. They go up to Helax Castle, who is the king of the geeks. We get this strange-ass digression on, like, what it means to be a good queen, because they mention, like, Helax queen, and they're, like, contrasting her to a queen that they call Modthrith, which is very interesting, because etymologically speaking, this could potentially like connect to some Morgan Le Fay stuff from Arthurian legend, which I just find interesting. 
especially considering what the story is for Modthrith, because she's apparently some shitty queen. She has her husband killed by another dude. Like, she she creates out of subterfuge having her husband killed, and that's something Morgan Le Fay does uh, in Arthurian legend. And she marries again, and is heralded after that, whatever. But I just found that fucking interesting, that there's, like, a Morgan Le Fay connection. Anyway, Helak greets them. Everyone's like, oh, shit, you're back. Let's party. Helak's like, Beowulf, what the fuck happened? I know, when you fucking left, you remember, I told you, like, man, don't fucking go there. Like, you're gonna die. I don't fucking want you to die. Like, let Rothgar handle his own shit. So, like, tell me. You're fucking here. What happened? Beowulf tells him he has this strange-ass digression about Rothgar's daughter who has not been mentioned at all up until this point even though she was apparently there this entire time that Beowulf was there Rothgar's daughter was also hanging around so Beowulf like has this weird digression he talks about Freyawaru who is Rothgar's daughter she's promised to this like um other clan basically like she's engaged to this random ass dude that is in that wasn't a feud with the Danes. And basically Rothgar is giving her away in marriage to like help settle that feud. Cause that's just like what they fucking did. They like, were like here, have my daughter and we're no longer enemies basically <laughs> is what happened. And Beowulf has this moment where he like talks about her and talks about her marriage thing. And he's basically like, I don't think it's going to end well. I think basically like, because of all the bad blood between them that eventually like, you know, they're just going to, fucking get angry that her fucking brethren who killed her husband's people at one point are hanging around and it's just shit's gonna get wild which has it just has nothing to do with anything i don't know why it's in there so anyway that's past he continues on <laughs> to grendel and he keeps telling Gren about like what happened with grendel tells it all over and he's even like embellishing shit a little bit like he is like trying to like kind of puff himself up in it which is funny and he gives his king all of the stuff that Rothgar gave him. He gives that shit to his king and, you know, his queen and all of his, uh, like, sons and daughters and shit. He gives all that stuff to them. So Helak is like, you've done us a great honor as Gittish people. He gifts Beowulf with some of his stuff. And he gives him a bunch of land as well. Like, I'm going to set you up for life, dude. So he is set up for life, and now we have a weird-ass time skip. This is the last, basically, like, the last fourth of the poem now. And suddenly, shit is really weird, because it's a short part of the poem, but the poet tries to pack in a lot of crazy-ass information into one short-ass part of the poem, and we have no idea why. So after this, there's a big-ass time skip. The poet tells us that we're now in the future after Helak and his son have also died and Beowulf has become king. Apparently, so much time has gone by. Beowulf is now the king and has been the king for a long time, and he was a good-ass king. But he is now dealing with shit as the Gittish people's king. He is struggling, apparently, with a dragon. He's dealing with a dragon because some idiot stole one of the dragon's cups from his hoard. We learn here the story behind the thief and like why this thief like 
got into the horde, but there's a problem with this part of the poem because a lot of the stuff is um, corrupted and like damaged. There's a bunch of shit missing in this part of the manuscript. But we can kind of piece together scholarship wise that essentially this is probably what the story was, that the thief has run away. He was a slave basically to like a high rich warrior and he's run away and he's being pursued by his, you know, like Lord. And he finds this hoard. It's under the ground. He sees a bunch of crazy ass shit in here. But most of the parts of that story and what he sees is the damaged part of the manuscript. It's almost kind of like whenever I read this, I'm always reminded of like the like cave of wonders type of shit that like Aladdin goes through. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that, that there's clearly a story attached to this based on the fragments that we can piece together, but we don't know what it is. So he finds this hoard. There's a bunch of crazy ass treasure here. The hoard is, has a history behind it. So we learned the history behind it. It's this ancient treasure from this ancient ass people who apparently had like a huge bad thing befall them. So all of them died except for like one dude. And that dude was like, well, I'm fucking alone now and none of my people exist anymore. So why do I need golden shit? Like I'm depressed as fuck, fuck life. So he buries it all cause he doesn't give a fuck. And he like dies of depression basically. It's really fucking sad. <laughs> it's really sad. And so a time goes by after that dude did that and a dragon finds his hoard. So the dragon has this hoard and it's his for like 300 years. Then our thief comes in. This is our present time of the story. So the thief takes the cup. He brings the cup back to his slave owner that he was running from uh, because he's trying to like make peace with him here here's this fucking cup it's worth like a gazillion bajillion dollars or whatever that pays for my slaveness and it pays for how why you were so mad at me right and his warrior slave owner is like absolutely it fucking does yes i will take that cup (laughs) but the sad thing is is the thief has fucking taken it from this dragon when the dragon wakes up he's like who the fuck has stolen my shit he walks around, he traces the smell and knows that it's going back to the Gidish land in the Gidish people. And the dragon is like, fuck all of you. So he gets up and he burns Geatland to the fucking ground. He burns the castle, the entire, ki- like it is Trogdor shit, like burninating the countryside, burninating the village, Hell the yeah. peasants, the thatched roof cottages. He is like, fuck every single one of you for touching my shit. I've done nothing to you. I've just been chilling for 300 years, minding my own fucking business. Why can't y'all do the same? Burns their asses to the ground. They burn, however, the fucking castle and a bunch of people are killed in this. So Beowulf is like, Jesus Christ. He's thankfully, obviously not at his castle when this happens. He's like out of town, I guess. And so he comes back and he sees his entire fucking kingdom is burned to the ground. And he's like, what the fuck? Okay, we're about to go like fucking barbecue some fucking dragon. I'm not about this. And he is not scared. And the poet like takes great pains to say that like Beowulf's not an idiot. 
it's not that he doesn't understand that a dragon is like scary as fuck but it's just that like he's been through so many battles that he's just not scared anymore like nothing scares him because he's lived through some shit and the poet goes into some of the shit that he's lived through even after Grendel. So now we get the huge, dumb Swedish digression, which is interesting, but it's just like the poet could have summarized this a whole lot instead of going on this big, long digression that had nothing to do with the story, basically. Yeah. So to super, super summarize this, essentially after Beowulf comes back from like, killing Grendel and shit. The Geats are like hanging out. Helak's a good king. At one point they go out to war with the Swedes. Pause and remember that. We'll come back to them. But the Swedish thing happens and then it goes away and then they go to war with the Frisians who are slightly tied to the Swedes and it's implied that they are essentially trying to battle with the Gietish people for the Swedes because the Swedish people had already had shit going down with them. So now they're battling with the Frisians. Helak dies in that battle. Beowulf escapes in that battle. He swims away. He murders like an entire tribe of people that try to catch him and bring him back to the Frisians. And he breaks through them all and goes back. When he gets back to the kingdom, he, uh, the queen, Helak's wife, who Helak is now dead, she tries to make Beowulf king over her own son because she doesn't think her son can do it. She thinks her son is too young and too, um, like, basically emotionally compromised because of his dad's death. She doesn't think it can happen. But Beowulf is like, absolutely not. I'm not fucking doing that. That's not honorable. He is the fucking king. I will help him. I will be his trusted advisor. I will give him all the fucking support he needs, but I'm not taking the kingship from him. So he upholds this guy and he becomes the king. Um, Hirdred, I believe his name is. Meanwhile, while that was happening, the Swedes have been going through some shit of their own <laughs> because even before their fights, the Frisian fights that was happening right now, their big ass king died in a different battle and he had two sons. And so his eldest son should have gotten the throne, but the younger son kills his fucking brother to take over the throne. And he has nephews. His brother had kids. He is trying to kill his nephews too, so that they can't take the throne and claim the throne from him. They escape, though. They don't die. They escape, and they run to the Geatlands. They come to Hirdred and are like, please fucking save us. We don't want to fucking die. Our uncle is crazy. He killed our dad. He's trying to kill us. And Hirdred is like, absolutely. I'll fucking help you. Cool. Onella, who is their uncle, the guy who just killed his brother, the Swedish guy who killed his brother to take the throne and it's not his. Remember this name from the beginning. Onella is the name of the fucking dude that Rothgar's sister is married to. Just FYI. It's not ever mentioned again, but they mention Onella's name and Ursa, who is the sister that part of that story at the beginning, that's his sister and she's married to Onella. And this shit is now happening with Beowulf. So there's this interconnected story that Rothgar is still a part of, even though we never see him again. So his wife is Rothgar's sister. And now 
his nephews, who he's trying to kill, are taking refuge in Hirdred's, the Gidish kingdom. And Donella is like, uh, nah, fuck you. I'm going to kill these guys anyway. And they come to war with the Geats. He doesn't get to his nephews, but he kills Hirdred in this battle before he goes home. So now he, like, son is also dead. Beowulf becomes king now because he insists. So one of the nephews also is dead now at this point, but it's, it wasn't in this battle. It was in something else. Or it was in this battle, but it's weird. We'll talk about it later. It'll come back later. So now there's only one nephew that's still alive. And Beowulf is now king of the Geats. And Beowulf is like, all right, we're going to bide our fucking time. He helps Agils, who is the leftover nephew. He nurtures him, brings him up, and supports him and gives him basically a fucking backing in an army to go back to the Swedish people and kill his fucking uncle and retake the throne for the Swedes. So now that we've all heard about that, the poet is like, anyway, back to the dragon. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, what the yes. fuck happened with the dragon? Yes. That's what I'm trying to tell you. The Swedish digression in Beowulf is so fucking long. And it's like, you could have summed this up way better than yeah. this. Why is yeah. this happening? I could have summed this up in like three drunken sentences. For real. Like, Asshole dude <laughs> wants to take the throne. He fucking yeets Mufasa off a cliff. Yes! He tries he tries to kill Simba and yes! Simba's brothers, but they escape and they go see Beowulf and then Beowulf helps. Literally. Literally, that's exactly what happens. It's so fucking pointless. There's no reason for Jesus. it. No one knows why. I was like happens. following along with you, like trying to follow along with this story <laughs> as you were telling it. And I was like, what the fuck does this have to do with the dragon? Anything. And when what are we getting back? Anything? The whole time you were talking, I was like, he should have t- taken dragon? This story should have ended when Grendel was dead. Like this sh- story should have ended like a thousand lines ago. What are we wasting it's our time? In- no, absolutely a thousand lines ago. Because remember, this is also the, it's not just the most important Old English poem. It's the longest Old English poem. It is a thousand ass lines too fucking yeah. long because of all yeah. this shit in it. Nah, he tried so, to write like a Chronicles of Narnia series. And this for is basically, real. this Swedish digression is basically a boy and his horse. Yes. Like, yes. why the that fuck is, did I just the- read this? The perfect, the perfect analogy. <laughs> like, Absolutely. That is the has, exact thing that happened. This has nothing to do with the rest of the story. It's long as fuck. Like, who gives a shit, basically? Who gives a shit? It's so who boring. Flying <laughs> fuck about what is it's happening. It's boring and complicated. Why? <laughs> anyway, back to the fucking dragon. Okay. So Beowulf is like, all right, we're going to fucking skewer some dragons. He gets his, like, best soldiers. There's, like, 12 of them, okay? And then he gets the thief who took the cup in the first place. The thief is like, yeah, my bad. Like, this is all my fault because I took this cup from the dragon. So um, I can show you where the horde is. (laughs) Sorry. And they're like, yeah, take us to the fucking horde. So they go to the horde. Beowulf to his soldiers at the horde is like, you know I've seen some shit. I've been around a long ass time. You know, Helak had a brother once that killed his other brother. That sucked. I was there for that. His dad died of depression after that. I was there for that. 
We fought the dumbass Swedes. We killed their king after they killed Hylek. I killed the actual person who killed Hylek with my bare fucking hands because that's just me. That's like the Beowulf fucking shit that I do. I was there for that. A bunch of other dumb battles. Grendel. All that shit. You know. But I'm not going to bullshit you guys. This is some shit. I don't know how to fight a dragon with my bare hands. So I'm going to have to do it the old-fashioned way with a sword. But I don't know how this is going to go down. Wish me luck. I'm going to do this on my own. You guys should not follow me. You should not intervene unless you have to. Like, this is a king's thing. So just, like, pray for me, fam. And they're like, absolutely. (laughs) Don't want to be involved whatsoever. So he goes in to fight the dragon. It's not pretty. He is old as fuck now, basically, and he's just not as good of a warrior as he used to be. So he has to give up some ground. They kind of, like, regroup. They go back and fight again. It's worse this time. He gets wounded in this second one. And all of the soldiers that he had gathered to be his, like, backup should at this point fucking intervene, but they've all chickened out like little chicken shits, and they fucking run away. The only one who doesn't run away is this kid named Wiglaf. Wiglaf is like Beowulf. Apparently, he has the same um, lineage as Beowulf because it's strange. He has both the Yiddish lineage and the Wagmunding lineage, which is weird and is not explained in the poem. He's also got the Swede dude, the nephew that eventually takes back his throne. He's also got his brother's sword. This is the only point that was important about the Swedish digression. And it's not even fucking mentioned in the Swedish digression. I'm so fucking pissed about it. Wiglaf's dad is the dude who kills Agil's brother during the whole Swedish digression. The reason that there's only one nephew left at the end of it, and he's the one that goes back and gets the thrones for the Swedish people, is because Wiglaf's fucking dad, despite the fact that Wiglaf is a geet and not a Swede, his dad, Weostan, was fighting for the Swedish people and fighting for Onella and kills one of the nephews. So he has that nephew's sword. The poet doesn't tell you any of this. You have to fucking learn through scholarship. When they mention Weostan and Wiglaf's dad, you can learn about it if you go and look it up, but the poet doesn't say fucking shit about it. It's stupid. It's fucking stupid. So, because this is the part that actually makes sense. This is the part that actually makes sense. Like, if you were going to tell me the Swedish shit, you should tell me that shit because it actually matters because now we have Wiglaf. It ties the two parts of the stories together. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Makes sense why we just went on this fucking, like, 30-minute long tangent about Sweden. Exactly. Exactly. But he doesn't. So, apparently, Wiglaf has Hanman's old sword or whatever. He was one of the soldiers that Beowulf got And he's the only one that doesn't run away. The soldiers are running away and Wiglaf is like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, no, this is bullshit. I'm going to help my king. You guys are pussies. He made us soldiers because we're supposed to be badasses. You're going to fucking run away now? Like, nah, I'd rather be dying and fighting with my king than be alive and be shamed as fuck because I was a bitch and left my king. Like, fuck you guys. He goes. He fights with Beowulf. He's the only one that does. Because of Wiglaf, Beowulf gets kind of a second wind. He hurts the dragon on the head. But in this process, he breaks his sword. So Wiglaf injures himself 
in the process of doing this so that he can get a better injury to the dragon. He gets up in the dragon's face and stabs him in the throat, basically. He gets his hand, like, burned off, basically, because of this, because he gets too close. But he wanted to get a better stab in, basically. He does it, and the dragon is now like, fuck, I'm stabbed in the throat. I can't, like, fight as hard as I was anymore. And Beowulf pulls out his, like, fighting dagger or whatever. And he guts the dragon they've fucking won they fucking won except beowulf remember got a big ass wound earlier and it's a fatal ass wound he's not living through this wiglaf like takes him off to the side he's trying to like clean him and wash him off beowulf is like stop stop like i'm not i'm not living from this i don't have any fucking kin Uh, you know i never married i never had any fucking kids like which is insane to me because you know beowulf pulled all the ass Right. That's what I'm saying. How did he not have kids? Because he was a warrior known in several different countries for being the slayer of all sorts of demons. Like, he for sure was getting laid. How did he not have any kids? There was no protection in 900 or 600. What was he doing? Like, Like, the fucking, like, sheepskin motherfucking uh, condoms shit? Yeah, the the pullout method. The pull-out method completely worked for Beowulf. He's got some babies somewhere. It's just babies he don't know about. But he is like, I don't have any babies, at least apparently that I know about. So you don't need to be trying to do this. Like, Wiglaf, I'm not going to live. Could you, instead of trying to do this, take me to the horde? I want to go see the horde of this dragon that I just killed. So Wiglaf obeys his king because that's what he's supposed to do. And Beowulf is like, holy shit, I'm so happy. All of this treasure, because it's a huge ass treasure. Like there's huge parts of the poems that like details all the fucking shit in it. It's just like a big ass treasure. And Beowulf is like, all of this is going to the Gidish people. I feel proud and humbled and honored that I fought and was able to win this for my people. And Wiglaf is still there and he's still trying to like keep Beowulf alive even though Beowulf is like, fucking stop, like, stop, dude. Take my stuff. He tells Wiglaf to take his stuff. You're the last of the Wegmundings, the part of Beowulf's clan that is the most obscure. He's like, you're the last of us. Yeah, he's like, you're the last of us. None of us really are left. Take my stuff. Because in lieu of having kids, you're the closest I have. I have to die now. And then he dies. (laughs) And... Wiglaf is sad as fuck and he's trying to bring his king back. It's really sad. He's like trying to wash him, trying to like bring life back and he's CPRing this shit and it's just not working. The soldiers come back. They're like, holy shit. They see the carnage all around and they're like, what the fuck happened? And Wiglaf is like, you assholes abandoned him. That's what fucking happened. He died because your asses ran to the fucking woods. You guys are wastes of soldiers. You don't deserve to be called soldiers. You're going to get none of this fucking treasure. In fact, I'm going to make sure that your land and all of your fucking possessions are stripped when we get back from Geatland. Hell yeah. Because you do not fucking deserve to be associated with this fucking king whatsoever. He'd be alive if you had done your fucking jobs. Get it, he's like, now go. He, he's just like furious. And he's like, now go fucking send someone to tell the rest of the army and the rest of the kingdom that our fucking king is dead because you guys are assholes. Go fucking do it. And 
Twilight sends some messenger, and the messenger goes off to the army and the people, tells them that their king is dead. And in this, the messenger is like, I don't see how this is going to be good for us, peeps. Like, fam, like, I don't know. You know, we, lots of people hate us. You know, the Frisians, the Swedes, all the fucking people, they all hate our asses. Now our king is dead. They're going to probably take advantage of this shit, just so you know. Uh, so we got to build a pyre for Beowulf and army. You got to go back. Cause like Wiglaf needs your help getting the like treasure home and shit. So the army comes, Wiglaf tells them what happened, tells them what the instructions are for Beowulf's funeral. They, he brings them in, they gather all of the treasure and they make a thing uh, to put Beowulf's body on so they can drag him back home so that they can do the funeral. And by the way, they, they clean up the, <laughs> After they take this horde, I was like, okay, well, there's a dragon corpse. So what the fuck is going to happen to that? Don't worry. The poet tells you they shove the dragon off a cliff into the sea. <laughs> they just shove him over a fucking cliff. And there's like, all right, well, that's fucking that. And they build a fire. Yeah. They build a pyre the exact way that, like, Beowulf wanted it. Because, like, part of his parting speech was, like, bury me like this. So they build his pyre exactly the way he wanted it. They put in his barrow, which is essentially like um like an Egyptian king's tomb. Uh, they put a bunch of treasure in it that will never be touched. And it's supposed to symbolize all of the treasure that would have gone to the soldiers were they not pieces of shit. And it goes in his barrow instead so that it will never be touched by anyone. And they have a big-ass funeral. They mourn their king. And they mourn the fact that now that their king is dead, they have no fucking idea what's going to happen to them. Because the surrounding tribes are probably going to come for their asses. And that's the end of Beowulf. That's what the a fucking, fucking mess. end of the poem. It does not end happy. It's a fucking crazy-ass ride, right? So... Lots of people, like, have opinions about this poem. Obviously, there's, like, archetypes that have really obviously influenced stories. There's the good versus eagle archetype. There's the epic hero archetype. There's the, like, heroic task archetype. Grendel is the, like, outcast archetype. There's magic weapons. You know, the hero's ordeal, the hero's journey, all of those type of archetypes in it, right? Mm -hmm. So J.R.R. Tolkien essentially has this opinion about Beowulf that its literary value has really been overlooked. That people don't appreciate Beowulf enough as an actual story and they focus too much on the historical relevance of Beowulf. And like, when was it? fucking printed when when is it supposed to represent who fucking wrote it like it are the people who are mentioned in it real people or not and J.R.R. Tolkien thinks that that's stupid and that people should actually be referring to Beowulf first and foremost as a story because it's a crazy ass story that he loved he had a big ass speech and wrote a big ass thing. It's called Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics. It's essentially like a master's thesis that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote all about Beowulf. And there's this quote from it. He says, Beowulf is in fact so interesting as poetry in places poetry so powerful that it quite overshadows the historical content and it should be treated as such. And he says that the effect of the poem is 
probably not a hero's tale. To him, it reads more like a long elegy rather than an epic. An elegy is like a mourning battle song. It's like for funerals. It's the story of someone who's died. There's stuff that Beowulf has clearly influenced. The problem is, is that stuff that is very clearly associated with Beowulf is not abundant. He clearly gets put into a bunch of people's stuff. So the only things that are very absolutely we can confirm direct derivatives from Beowulf are, for instance, John Gardner's Grendel from 1971. Uh, that is a retelling that tells the story of Beowulf, but it tells it from Grendel's point of view. And Michael Crichton, due to Jurassic Park, Eaters of the Dead is admitted by Crichton to be a Beowulf retelling. The 13th Warrior movie with fucking Antonio Banderas, which is one of my favorite movies. It's hilarious. It's an awful movie, but it's super funny and I love it. The 13th Warrior is supposed to be a, like, like inspired by Beowulf. W.H. Canaway's The Ring Givers is another uh, literary work that is influenced by Beowulf. And then we have three movies, essentially. Beowulf, the movie, the first one was a 1999 version. Beowulf and Grendel was created in 2005. And then the infamous Beowulf from 2007, where everything was uh, CGI'd and was like a fucking crazy ass PCP fever dream that nobody wanted or asked for. <laughs> and that is the fucking story of Beowulf. That is it. Oh my God. I fucking did it. So would you fucking read it? <laughs> uh, so I have read it. Nice. Um, I read the new telling by Robert mm. Nye. When I was in seventh grade, um, it was part of my advanced English class. That's uh, super young. Seventh fucking grade for Beowulf? Christ. Yeah, seventh grade. Uh, advanced English with Mrs. Arnold. She was, she was amazing. We also read nice. The Pearl that year and Holes. So, <laughs> you know. Okay, the Holes is absolutely seventh grade and the whole amazing. spectrum of fucking books, like... I have to cover holes one of these episodes. None absolutely. of these things are like the other. <laughs> so, wow. yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, from Beowulf read, to holes. <laughs> yeah, basically. I think we might have started with holes and then moved to the pearl and then to Beowulf to end it. Like, it went like easy to kind of, no, to, like a little hard to like really done, fucking hard. <laughs> I would say, like, there was some more prep work that needed to have been done before she just yeah, like threw your asses into Beowulf. It was a lot, but like she worked hand in hand with our history teacher at the time because in seventh grade oh, at my school, okay. it was like medieval history. Like, yeah. I mean, watered down medieval history, but nonetheless, yeah, 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 like yeah. you were learning no, about castles you. and all that. So she kind of tied yeah, like, into that. Our time um, was like when collaboration was super huge, like before Common Core and stuff, people, they had collaboration and whatnot yeah. for school. So yeah, now that makes sense that your history teacher and your like core or language teachers were like let's cover shit that matches except yeah. medieval shit is not something that like seventh graders surely ever be reading because it's incomprehensible yeah so the way that i actually <laughs> figured out which version i had read was because i can distinctly remember the cover nice. of the book of the book that i read so i like google image searched beowulf and looked for the version 
that looked like the one that I read in seventh grade. And this was Wonderful. the one by Robert Nye because it had it was mostly green. Like the whole book was green uh, or the whole cover was green. And it had this god awful like Jabba the Hutt looking picture of Grendel on the front. <laughs> um, that's great. So yeah, that's how. Hold on. I, I got to look this up now. I'm gonna okay, look it's it up while you're talking. Beow- Beowulf, A New Telling by Robert Nye. I think there's two versions of it, or a couple different versions of the cover, but the one that I read was the one with the, it had red text. The title is in red text, and the rest of it okay. is mostly green. So yeah, Grendel looks like a fat, lumpy bitch. And oh, I, wait, I see it. It's I got like I Beowulf on a horse, on a white yes. horse in the background. So. Yes, this is great. So that's the version I read in middle school. I don't remember... <laughs> Um, like oh, a, that's lot of amazing. The, a lot of the stuff that you were talking about after Beowulf slays Grendel and Grendel's mom, I don't remember, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I don't remember it because it just wasn't interesting. Or, yeah, is it because it's boring as fuck? <laughs> or if I don't remember it because that's where my English teacher chose to stop. Yeah, the lesson it might have been. Because, it might have been. Yeah, because... Grendel is the really important, like, interesting part of the story. And Grendel and Grendel's mom is literally, like, two-thirds of the poem. And then yeah. the rest of it is, like, a shit ton of information, but yeah. in a tiny-ass amount of poem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the end part, the end part with the dragon um, kind of sounded familiar. But mm-hmm. who knows? Like, that could have just been me piecing together any other story about a knight <laughs> and a dragon. And, like, right. oh, it's yeah, pretty, it was probably yeah, this. standard, like, yeah. Yeah, standard medieval, like, fantasy, basically, so. Absolutely. um, I remember reading this and liking it. Like, this version, The New Telling by Robert Nye, is, like, a very, I would say, Americanized, Mm. dumbed-down version. Like, I don't remember having any trouble. Well, especially if she gave it to you guys in seventh grade to read, it would probably have to be one that, like, you know, that seventh graders would (laughs) at least be able to read some of the words, you know? Yeah, I mean, there was was for sure a lot of, like, vocabulary that we learned because of this book that just wasn't Mm -hmm. already in our our repertoire, in our wheelhouse, but I remember liking it a lot. I think this story, the idea of this monster Grendel who's just like, shut the fuck up, neighbors, like, I'm I'm going to murder all yes. of you was yes. very interesting and <laughs> the idea that the kingdom knew about the mom and didn't say shit to beowulf that there was it's a mom so fucking wild right it's was, wild was fucking absurd like why would you do that the question is really if i would read it again and the answer is no <laughs> i would not <laughs> So I really liked this when I was in seventh grade. Yeah. But for me, like, okay, people who don't know either Sam or I, <laughs> we are very different people. We're, it's weird. Yeah. We're very, very similar in many, yeah, many say, ways. Like, but, there's a lot of us that is, like, very, almost twin-like. And then there yeah, are we're, parts we're cousins. of us that are literally polar opposites. Yeah. So, like. so we're cousins who grew up more like sisters. Yes. And we are very similar in a lot of ways. You'll... Like, our mannerisms are very similar. The way we speak is very similar. But Sam chose the academic, like, reading route. And I chose (laughs) the music and entertainment route. Performative, yeah. Performance route. So Sam chose to get great at reading and learn a lot about (laughs) literature and things like that. And though I loved reading as a kid, it, like, steep tapered down, like, as soon as I got to high school. (laughs) And now, like, I barely, like, I don't read very much. (laughs) 
be fair, though, in high school, I think you probably would have kept reading a whole lot more if you weren't so fucking busy. But you were, like, crazy-ass busy in high school. Because you yes, were in band. You were, like, in fucking swim team and shit. Like, you were always doing shit in high school. I feel yes, like I was you very would busy. have continued had- reading in the way that you wanted, but you just literally couldn't because you were always, like, fucking tired when you came home. Well, yes and no. I think high school English had a lot to do with the reasons that I stopped reading as much as I did because Mm. my middle school English classes were like, okay, we're going to read this, these things, and then we're going to relate them to your life right now. Like in eighth grade, I can distinctly remember reading The Outsiders and the story of Anne Frank and then my teacher and my teacher like relating them to what was currently happening in the world wow, and the how outsiders too that's interesting i like that yeah. okay and and how it like related to our lives as kids like yeah. the outsiders was very you know those were kids and they were yeah. just outcasts they were living in a yeah. they were mm-hmm. poor and it's living shitty lives much, uh, and it's yeah. very relatable Mm -hmm. But as soon as I got into high school, the dynamic of the reading shifted and it switched Mm. to here's all the classics that you have to read and it's non-negotiable. It's too early. It's too early. No, I I completely agree with you. Like I said, I remember I read Beowulf when I was in advanced English. I think it was a literature class when I was a senior. So like I was still pretty like I was older for high school, like for when they taught me, but it's still too young. Like, there are some classics that you can cater to younger audiences. You absolutely can. But there are some classics that unless you really water them down or give a really smaller, like, simplified version that are just not for high school students, like... yeah. They're just not going to get it. They don't have enough world experience. They don't have enough ability to kind of like look outside of their like self-centered world to like understand experiences of other people around the world. It's just not going to penetrate for them. It's not. And it doesn't matter how hard you try. And it doesn't matter like what your good intentions are as a teacher. Like I'm not saying that, that like you're trying to like push shit malignantly. It's obviously coming from a good place because you're wanting to try and culture these kids. But it's too early. Some Some of the classics are just too early. Yeah, I feel like the the standards that are pushed on English teachers really force kids, not force kids, but have a negative impact on kids in that regard to reading. Because up through eighth grade, I absolutely adored reading and I would read on my own. Like I had a stack of books that I would just go through and read when I was done with my homework or whatever. Well, yeah, um, I was going to say like, and I do remember like when you would be coming home and stuff like in those years that like you still were reading like you still had books everywhere I remember like when we were reading the Harry Potter series like sitting with you and like talking about it so it wasn't that you weren't a reader it was that you weren't getting what you needed from school yeah so like I think I think the shift for me into not reading like on top of not having time because high school the commitment to your schoolwork in high school is like way worse than middle school but my ninth grade English class and I don't know if it's like that still because this was 20 years ago, basically. My ninth grade English class was like the Hoofden Mifflin English book version of uh, Romeo Romeo and Juliet and Uh. like 
Odyssey and one really? other the Odyssey? one other story. Really? Yeah. Oh my and, god. And it sucked because those stories yes. like there was not a way to be like no emotionally invested in any of these characters, hey, especially hey, reading year old. Here's how you can connect to the Odyssey. Like, no, that doesn't exist. Wow. Yeah, es- that's especially crazy. especially what I was 14 as a freshman or th- 13 or 14 as a freshman trying to cope with like my coursework basically doubling from middle school to high school because that's how high school is and then still trying mm-hmm. to read what I had to read for class and be interested in it and that was like yeah. that first English class though I loved my English teacher and I did really well it kind of like burned me out on reading for Absolutely. fun aside yeah. from the Harry Potter books like that's the only set of books that I can remember reading for fun in all in all four years of high school yeah no and- I yeah I think that's super valid no I agree as a college professor like getting students that come fresh out of high school a lot they don't they don't have the appropriate support for them for having not just a love of reading because the love of reading requires some stuff that people don't understand until they experience it themselves. If you don't love reading, it's probably because you weren't given the support that you needed to like help you build critical thinking skills, like imaginative skills, language skills and that's not your fault and that's not saying that you're like a like a stupid person if you feel like you you know now that you're older or an adult that you don't like reading it's not that you're stupid it's that probably that you just weren't for whatever reason whether you enjoyed your teachers or not that the way that you were taught didn't scaffold enough for you and didn't ingratiate enough for you and build enough for you your ability to connect whenever you read something you should be engaging in your imagination and it should always be that first any other things that you're learning from your reading particularly reading fiction especially classical fiction because of the fact that it's so old, so outdated, so hard to connect to modern day that the first and foremost thing that should be supported is a connection to themselves imaginatively. If you can't establish that link, nothing else is going to follow. The student is not going to fucking care. They're not going to care about the historical context. They're not going to care about anything else that's going on in the story because they can't fucking imagine it themselves. They have no ability and no basis to imagine it themselves in their head because they're not interested and you haven't engaged their interest. That should be what the focus is, but it's not. And it's not for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into now because I'll get all up on my soapbox about like teaching to the test and shit like that and state standards. But like garbage, garbage, garbage. It's the reason that I that I left my single subject matter program when I was getting my bachelor's because I was in a single subject matter program that would have qualified me to not have to take the CSET so that I could teach English for middle school slash high school. I was in a program for that. That's what I was doing. And I eventually abandoned it because what I was learning in that program, I was like, I don't want anything to do with these standards. I don't want anything to do with them. They don't actually support students. They don't actually support imagination. And that is what 
motivates the kids. They are this- not motivated unless they connect that shit to their own lives and they have the imaginative ability to get engaged in the stuff. Like yeah. that is just how it is. It doesn't matter how much rote learning, how much, you know, historical facts you can shove into their brains. If they cannot connect emotionally, purely imaginatively, purely enjoying a story, they absolutely will not like reading point blank hands down sorry i did even though i said i wasn't gonna get on my soapbox i'm so sorry no you're fine i got all up on it you're fine (sighs) um no i completely agree the state standards at least in california for english particularly because english is such a creative art yes it is so important that the kids can find themselves in whatever story you're reading. So that's, I mean, you can see it. If you just look at like book sales records among Mm -hmm. kids, you will see that the books that kids are picking out and choose to read on their own are the stories where they see themselves. Like the reason Hunger Games trilogy did so well and the reason what were those well, we were just we Allegiant. were talking about twilight at the beginning of this thing twilight yeah. wasn't written well and you and i were talking about it artistically it's not written well but it was a fucking phenomenon and it was a fucking because, phenomenon because she was telling a story that lots of fucking kids could relate connect to, to. Yes. yes same with hunger games like you can't if you go out to any anywhere basically and found 10 kids who read the hunger games and asked them what character did you see as yourself and why each one of those kids will likely have a different reason why the specific character related to them they might all half of them might all agree hey it's katniss like she was my favorite and i related to her because but then that because is going to be different for every kid it's like oh yeah i grew up poor and i had to fight for myself that's why i related to her or i really loved a guy or a girl and i had to fight for that love or yep. i had to support my younger sibling because you know our parents are kind of all over the place there's yep. an infinite number of reasons why these characters that are so beloved in ya and children's literature get remembered and yes. if you don't find a character find a story that has some sort of tie-in to these kids real lives they're not going to give a fuck like ninth right. grade english ninth grade english is where you get those kids because yes in seventh they're and eighth right grade, at the cusp it is the it is yeah. that transitional fucking period between being a child fearing authority still you know not really understanding if you are going through the hormonal changes still essentially being a kid and suddenly now being a young adult now experiencing hormones now experiencing really weird emotions and thoughts and feelings that don't necessarily jive with thoughts that you really actually have about stuff and who you really are and how to navigate those changes that is the cusp you're exactly right and I'm not saying by any means that, you know, we need to take Romeo and Juliet or the Odyssey out of literature learning because it is important and those are really important stories eventually. Right. But especially Romeo and Juliet. Okay. A lot of people all over <laughs> the world love that fucking story. And But me, do they? Do they actually love it? I think you're going to make the point that I'm about to make, so I'm just going to shut up, but yeah. I have never understood everyone's fucking, like, addiction to that story. Like, that Because they don't actually know what the real story is. 
that story, at least as I remember it, is fucking trash. Like, we're learning about yes. teenagers. <laughs> like, like, we're learning, not even teenagers. Like It's if, absolutely, if these, it's if at the bottom are, of Shakespeare's best shit. Like, yeah, it is really like, not his best shit at all. Well, and so, okay, if these were teenagers, like, we were talking about 16, 17, 18-year-olds, like, I drive a car, I do whatever, like, okay, sure, like, mm-hmm. I understand the teen love angle, like, you love someone so much, you would do anything for them, like, that high school love yeah. can be that intense and does often have, like, a lot of really intense feelings with it, sure, yeah. but that is a fucking... It's a ninth grade standard, or was 20 years yeah. ago. It was a ninth grade standard, so we're talking to 14-year-olds. And the kids in the story, like Romeo and Juliet, are yep. 12 and 13. Because at the time when yep. Romeo and Juliet was actually happening, like Shakespeare time. That was that, the time that, that was oh, the age hey, that kids guys got married. Get married now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, like... Even as a 14-year-old, like, I would have been older than Romeo and Juliet were in the actual story. I couldn't imagine myself at 14 being in love with someone so much that I would disobey my family the way that either one of them did, that I would put my entire, like, castle and family at risk for fucking right. war over that you'd want to kill yourself essentially some yeah that i'd want to commit suicide over some yes. fucking shitty 13 year old down the street like who and to be perfectly honest to me i am always upset that we teach romeo and juliet because our fucking youth already have a fucking mental health issue that we don't address yeah. enough in america and you're fucking talking to them about a quote unquote love story that essentially promotes suicide like no dissing on Shakespeare but he romanticizes suicide in that fucking story because these are 12 and 13 year olds that are so in love and they've had sex with each other which is just fucking beyond at 12 and 13 they have sex with each other because they've decided that they love each other so fucking much that they're going to like you said not just risk the safety and the happiness and the reputations of their entire family, but they will absolutely kill themselves if they can't be together. And you think like you read that and you're like, you know what? This is a great thing to like read to 14 and 15 year olds. (laughs) Like they won't like take this uh, to heart or anything and like internalize it and like, you know, put it into their own fucking mental health issues like are you fucking blind that is so harmful for them yeah they don't need that and i i think that romeo and juliet is a good story generally speaking it's a pretty good story it's a good story it's It's not a love story it's it's memorable it's a tragedy it's one of shakespeare's many tragedies because that's what the dude did but i don't feel like it's appropriate for children it needs to get moved to like that's a college level. Yes. Like, okay, yes. I have one hundred percent agree. I've I've escaped. Like, I've already left that like childish yes. that first love feeling. Thinking, I've left yes, that behind. Exactly. We've left that behind. We're, we're so I can actually competently reflect on that experience and yeah. see what's happening with these kids and know that although those feelings are super strong that I can actually see as an audience member because I'm older now, oh no, this is not going to lead to somewhere good. Yeah, their whole relationship was toxic as fuck. And 
it shouldn't be taught to kids <laughs> it's a mess absolutely concur yeah oh so my god I we th- fucking went crazy again yeah so if you didn't know literature is much harder to recap than film and like we've said sam is the language art type person so i'm kind of kind of drunk uh <laughs> and i am not that person i am a <laughs> a cinephile so i just watch movies and then i talk about them if you've listened to any of the rest of allentown presents podcasts you would know that which are great and everyone should go listen to (laughs) literally all of the allentown presents podcasts right fucking now there's so uh, many putting in things that are not a plug yeah we hit uh 200 episodes already that's insane like yeah we work we work hard when we're not at our actual jobs (laughs) yeah they say like it may or may not have been facilitated by a pandemic but we're just gonna like ignore the fact that that happened that we're able to be at home i mean yes Yes and no. We were already over True. 100 episodes, I think, before True. the pandemic started. You're right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, who, guys, this is going to be a lot or not I'm a lot. I'm so excited I'm, right now. I'm Sam so Sam doesn't even know right what movie I'm, I'm about to do. I don't. So. I literally don't. I told her what I was going to do and she didn't fucking tell me what she was going to do. And I'm super pissed off about it now, actually. I'm like waiting. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the movie that I am gonna drunkenly run you guys through is the 1994 family sports fantasy comedy drama film classic that's literally what it fucking says on the wikipedia page the fuck is this i'm so ready angels in the outfield angel oh my god oh my god oh my god i'm so fucking excited right now oh my god i'm so excited (laughs) Okay, so as the Wikipedia fucking description suggests, this is a family film made by Disney. It is also a sports fantasy film because oh it's God. about baseball and right. they're, the imagine- they're imagining angels. And it's a comedy drama because it is, while it is very funny, there's some serious yes. shit happening to the kid in this story. Absolutely. Oh my God. I'm so fucking happy right now. Like my entire soul just like lit up. I feel like electrocuted. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm here. I'm present. I'm so happy to do this right okay, now. Okay. So this is about as far in the opposite direction from Beowulf as you can possibly be. <laughs> Absolutely, which Which I love. Which is why I chose it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I originally thought about doing like another epic movie like Gladiator or something like that. And I was like, no, Mm. that's going to take way too long. And it's going to be too similar. Like the different paths, it's going to be too much. So. Absolutely. No, I love this. I love that it's going to be so different. I'm super ready for this. Okay. So for anyone who has not seen Angels in the Outfield, like first off, how? Why? where have you been? Uh, it came out, like I said, in 1994. This film is about the Anaheim Angels. There you go. That's what it is. Yes. Question mark. I don't know if that's I what think they it were is. actually it's called the in 1994. Because now the, they're, mm, right now, they're the right. Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. There you go. A, I was going to say, like, is, eventually they become the LA Angels, but I can't remember when that happened. <laughs> That's a trash name, and that came up in the last couple of years. So I'm pretty sure during this movie, they were the Anaheim Angels. Okay, so this movie stars a baby JGL, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, at peak cuteness. Okay, JGL was like 12, and 
as a child who was at the time of this movie's release seven i was absolutely in love and i have been in love with joseph gordon levitt ever since so if any of y'all want to come at me and be like i fell in love with joseph gordon levitt when he was in 10 things i hate about you or fuck you exception or whatever i'm like fuck you man i've been in love with him since 1994 from day fucking one i'm the same way about like gregory smith like it's so bad no i totally fucking feel you and i always forget that joseph gordon levitt is in this fucking movie and every time i think about it i'm always like (gasps) joseph gordon levitt was in that movie and i'm always ridiculously excited again (laughs) yes remembering so this film uh is about joseph gordon levitt and his foster family he has a best friend named pj who is a kid who's a little bit smaller than him who lives in his foster home with him. And his foster mom is a woman named Maggie, who is played by the Pigeon Lady from Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Amazing. if you watch this film and you haven't seen it in a long time, you're going to recognize a ton of faces that either eventually went on to be really famous or were already right. famous at the time in the 90s who you recognize from other films that you loved in the 90s. Okay, so Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in foster care because his dad, Dermot Mulroney, is the fucking scum of the earth basically. His mom dies and his dad realizes that he can't handle fucking raising a kid like a bitch and gets his kid taken away or something like that. I don't, I don't really know the circumstances as to why he ended up in foster care in the beginning, but it's something you're right. It's it's something something like that, but, but like like neglectful. Yeah. But 10 minutes into the movie, JGL gets back to his foster home after riding bikes with PJ and finds Dermot Mulroney, Garbage Dad, in the house and has a conversation with him. And Garbage Dad informs JGL. I love that you're just referring to him as Garbage Dad. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to use regular actual names Absolutely. for any of these fucking people. So <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm totally so, here for it. Yeah. So Garbage Dad informs JGL that he is giving up his parental rights, basically. And all he has to do is go to court and like finish signing a document to give up his rights and he's trying to explain it to jgl who is like i don't know 10 or 12 at the time and Hmm. he's like yeah sure dad i get it kind of what's it gonna take for us to be a family again and the dad says well at this point basically it would take the angels winning the pennant insert information that the angels at the time this is happening are last in the entire mlb like they are the worst team in major league baseball they're the bottom (laughs) of their division it's basically no hope like they are the worst team in existence so he's like yeah when the angels win the pennant they are they are the browns of the fucking like major league baseball yes absolutely So Garbage Dad is basically like, yeah, if they win the pennant and end up going to the championships, then I will fucking come back and I'll step it up and I'll be your dad. <coughs> and the kid's like, hell yeah. Like, I'm going to pray that the That's angels so win the pennant. That's so fucking malicious. That's so, so he, malicious. So, like, he's so just like kid. making a fucking stupid joke about it. I'm so sorry. Go on. Yeah, it, no, it is. That's why he's Garbage Dad. So JGL goes to bed that night. He's already frustrated because his dad has like given up cuss and he mostly understands that because he's in the system, which is horrible. Like a 12-year-old should mm-hmm. not have to be dealing with these things. Absolutely. And he goes to bed and he prays at night to God, if there is a God, please help the angels win the pennant because I want to just... <sighs> 
see my dad again. I want to be a family again with my dad. And fun fact, there's a hidden Mickey in the stars because this is a Disney wow. movie. Yeah. So okay. he prays that the angels will win the pennant and <laughs> and he will get reunited with his dad. You know, it's the longest of long shots, basically. They're in last place. They're, you know, team 30 out of 30. Like, right. what's what are the chances that they will that this will ever happen? Right. So the next day is a baseball game. It's like kids day or something at the stadium. And the kids have tickets, like, I don't know, through the foster care system. I don't know. They got a bunch of kids tickets and they end up at the game. <laughs> Him and PJ end up at the game. They're sitting there at the game watching this baseball game happening. And all of a sudden, a guy hits something into the outfield and two angels swoop down from the sky, pick up the outfielder and carry him high enough so that he can pick the ball out of the sky and make the catch. And it Listen causes- to me, I'm like gasping. I already know what happens. Like I watched the fucking <laughs> like movie, but I was like, show. yeah, I was like, you were like, angels swoop in and I was all, <laughs> sorry, continue. So these, so these angels help him grab the ball out of the sky and he makes the catch and the guy gets an out and it moves on. And all the while, baby JGL is in the stands and he's asking PJ, like, did you see those two glittery dudes like come out of the fucking clouds and help him? Like, <laughs> they were like some shit? Edward Cullens type of shit. Like, did yeah. you fucking see that? Yeah. And PJ is, okay, so JGL is like 12. PJ's maybe eight. Like he's a littler, a much littler kid than Joseph Gordon Levitt. And the kid is just like, uh, I saw a good catch. Like that kid didn't see shit. So JGL's freaking out in the stands, like, what the fuck did I just see? But hooray, they made a catch. Then the big guy on the team, played by Tony Longo, I couldn't find his actual character name because why? But (laughs) the biggest dude on the team, he's the catcher, he shows up, gets up to bat. And the announcer, who's also a dirtbag, is saying his stats, and he's like, oh, for 27. Like, at his 27 last at-bats, he has not made a single hit. So he gets up to bat, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt peeps fucking glittery hands on the bat with him when he goes to swing, and he swings, and the bat breaks, and the dude hits a home run. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt, again, freaks out like you do, and Mm -hmm. asks PJ, like, did you see those hands on the bat with him? And he's like yeah he's like no but i saw a really good hit and he's asking the adults and stuff in the seats around him like did you see that did you see that and everyone's looking at him like the fuck kid no what are you talking about that was a (laughs) a lucky hit um yeah so the guy hits a home run and they end up winning the game it's their first win in who knows how long right and after they win the game there's like a drawing for a photo op with the coach who everyone in stands is basically like that's a fucking shitty prize nobody likes the coach he's been sucking it up this whole team's been sucking it up and the coach is played by fucking danny glover No one wants to get it, but PJ ends up winning. And PJ's like, you do it. I don't like strangers. I'm shy around strangers because I'm a little kid. You do it. Like, I'll go with you, but I'm not, like, I don't want to do it. So you do it. So JGL goes up and he takes the picture and he's talking to the coach and he's like, hey, I saw these angels come down. Oh, backtrack. I forgot a part. When they're sitting in the stands (laughs) right after the bat break. Al, the head angel played by mm. Doc Brown or Christopher Lloyd, yes. yeah, 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 pops, yeah, 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 pops yeah. up next to JGL and kind of explains what's happening. Like, you made a wish. We're here to help your wish Stop. get fulfilled. Basically, yeah. we're going to help the angels as much as we can. So then he's at this photo op. He takes his picture. And then he's explaining to the coach, like, hey, there were these angels on the field. They did this and this and this. And they helped win the game. And he's like, 
you're fucking kidding me. Like, get out of here. Garbage, whatever. <laughs> right? Because what grown person is going to believe right. a little kid Absolutely. that these, you're these like, angels okay, are helping child, a baseball where, team? Where is your handler? I'm sorry. Security. <laughs> security. Yeah. So the next game happens, and somehow these foster kids are also able to go to that game which how um very interesting yeah but they end up at like the next home game and angels pop up again and they keep helping he finds a way to get his place with the coach and is like hey these angels showed up again and they helped and they did this and they did that and he's explaining what happened and the coach is finally like okay well i kind of believe you how about you be my like assistant you let me know when there's angels in the thing and i'll get you seats at the next few games or whatever Mm. So he sets JGL and PJ up with, what's the guy's name? I don't know his actual name, but like the media director guy for the Angels at the time. And he basically makes the media guy their handler. And he sets them up right next to their dugout so that he can see JGL when it's time. And JGL comes up with this signal to let the coach know that angels are present like they're gonna right. help out with this play yeah and yeah, yeah yeah this is one of the things that i remember the most about this yeah this movie yeah so the signal is to go into a t-pose with your arms and then flap them like fucking big ass wings like angels <laughs> right very, very clearly subtle. yeah it's the the most subtle of fucking things, right <laughs> So, you know, hilarity ensues. Several games happen. The angels are helping. The actual angels from heaven are helping the angels win baseball games. They're doing all sorts of weird shit, like kooky stuff with the ball. Like they're making the other team trip on the balls. They're making the other, like the balls uncatchable. They're making the angels players make these outrageous catches and these outrageous fucking hits and stuff. Saves and yeah. Just absurd. And all the while, you know, JJ, is telling the coach, hey, this is happening. Hey, this is happening. So about, I don't know, three quarters through the movie, Garbage Dad pops up again. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt's super excited, like, hey, the Angels are on their way to win in the pennant. They only need to win, like, two more games or something like that to get to the pennant. And then we can be a family again, right? Which is fucking heartbreaking and soul-crushing if you're an adult and you're watching this movie. Because you know for a fact that that Garbage Dad is a piece of shit. Yep. But as a kid, you're like, yay, they're going to get their happy ending. Right. So he's excited telling his dad all this stuff. Like, they're going to win the pennant. And you can just see on the dad's face, watching it as an adult, like, that dad's going to fuck that kid over right now. Ugh. And then the dad is like, I was just joking about that. It doesn't matter if they win the pennant. I've given up my parental <sighs> rights. Like, I can't take care of oh you, God. basically. Yeah. So awful. Yeah. Garbage dad. So he drives off into the sunset or into the night on his motorcycle and just leaves JGL there fucking pissed and devastated, right? And then the next game comes and it's the division championship and there's no angels present. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is feeling super down on himself and he's like, the fuck, man, what are we going to do? Like, when are the angels going to show up? Like, we're Mm -hmm. down however many points. And then Al, the lead angel, pops up and he lets him know that, hey, you know, angels can't, we can't interfere with championship games. Like, we can help you get all the way to the championship, but the championship has to be won on your own merits. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is crushed, you know, because this is all he wants as a kid. Like, he needs the angels to win. And the angels team 
is also like waiting for the angels to show up basically because they've all bought into this idea that the angels are going to help them win that they keep coming so the players are starting to feel like fuck we're gonna lose what are we gonna do and they're waiting for the angels to show up and joseph gordon levitt's like fuck the angels aren't gonna show up what are we gonna do and then joseph gordon levitt gets the bright idea like only a pure-hearted kid could do this shit and he stands up even though there are no angels when tony danza's character who is like this retired oldest fuck pitcher gets on the mound right He's washed up, right? He's past his prime. He can't pitch for shit anymore. Tony Danza gets on the mound and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like, okay, this is the moment. Like, either the angels show up here or they don't show up at all and everyone loses all the faith and we lose the pennant right. and everything's to shit. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt has the bright idea. He stands up and he gives the angel signal. Like the, I'm going to flap my arms up and down. And at this point, everybody is so into this idea that the angels are there to help them that the entire stadium stands up on their feet and does the fucking angel symbol to help. I remember this. To help Tony Danza, like realize that he's got help on the mound. And he pitches and strikes the guy out and the angels win the pennant. Hooray! Yes! So, so Joseph Joseph Gordon-Levitt's little lie that the angels were yeah. there ended up helping the Anaheim Angels win the pennant and their division. Now, sad news. Al, who had come to the game to explain to JGL that the angels cannot help in this game because right. it's a championship game, mm-hmm. was also there to keep an eye on Tony Danza's character because Tony Danza's character only has a couple more months left to live because oh. he's been smoking for years and years and years and is about to be taken by cancer. That's right. Yeah, it gets dark for a minute in this Disney story. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt is dealing with that whole information like fuck dude my favorite player in all of baseball is about he's a fucking child he's literally a child but he handles it like a pro he like doesn't let it get to him he's like okay well i gotta make sure that the fans and everybody like knows like okay the angels are coming they're here they're gonna help right and then plus side Okay, garbage dad, he's out of the picture. He drove away on his motorcycle because fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. For real. So after the Angels win the pennant, the coach, played by Danny Glover, drives the team home from the championship game. And he pulls Maggie aside and is like whispering to her, you know, they're kind of talking their adult stuff while the kids are getting ready for bed or whatever they're doing, celebrating the win. Yeah. And then they call the kids back in and... They let them know that Danny Glover's character, who has always wanted to be a dad but was too busy with baseball, is going to adopt both of them. And they end up becoming his kids and they end up getting to stay together. And that's the end of the happy movie, Angels in the Outfield. (laughs) I'm so fucking happy. Like, round of a fucking pause. I'm literally (laughs) making my hands go in a circle to make that happen. Yeah. So, Joseph Gordon-Levin and PJ end up with their happy ending. They end up with a dad who actually gives a fuck about them and basically fucked Dermot Mulroney and his garbage motorcycle that he rode in on. Like, fuck that guy. A thousand percent. He's out. Tony Danza, the boss, he ends up eventually dying and becomes an angel. Uh, Though we don't see that on screen that's kind of what al like 
lets them know is going to happen. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, fun facts about this movie. Yes. So this movie came out in 1994, but was filmed using all of the uniforms that they used in 1993. And that's how you can kind of tell the discrepancy between when it was supposed to take place, quote unquote, okay. and when it actually happened. So there you Okay. You can see it not really in the angels' uniforms because the angels' uniforms kind of stayed the same for pretty much a, a while. For a while, but in the teams that they play, uh, you can see it in their hats and the different gear that they're wearing because right. both the A's and the White Sox, I think, changed major parts of their uniforms between 93 and 94. Yeah. And in this movie, they're all using the 1993 versions of those uniforms because that's what was available when they started making all the costumes and shit for this movie. Got it. Okay. This movie did have two made-for-TV sequels. Ooh. It had Angels in the End Zone, all about football, which was a trash movie. And also <laughs> Angels in the Infield, which was another baseball movie, which was also trash because oh God. in both of those movies, like none of the original cast was there. It was like, why'd you even bother? What why is this happening? Right. What was the fucking point? Okay. <laughs> Other fun facts. It was released less than a month before the 1994 Major League Baseball strike, which forced the league to cancel playoffs and the World Series. So the playoffs of the championship game that happens in this film happened during a season when that didn't even happen in real life. Okay. So it's completely fictional. And the Angels, the Anaheim Angels, didn't go on to actually win a pennant until 2002, I think. I can't remember wow. which one it was. Yeah, so they went on quite a while before they had actually won a true pennant. Wow. Yeah, there are some true Major League Baseball players that happen in this film. In the championship game, the guy who is supposed to hit the home run at the very end from the White Sox, he's like this big hulking dude who's just like yeah. he like spits tobacco on the mound or whatever and he's just like DCJ dog or whatever yeah and he's gonna hit a home run that guy is an actual former Anaheim Angel who wow. plays who plays for the White Sox uh in the movie so he was really big in the 80s his name was Carney Lansford he played for the Angels from 1978 to 1980, but he ends up playing for the fictional White Sox in the movie. He's basically the last pitch of the game. Like, right. either, either he hits a home run or Tony Danza strikes him out. Like, that's right. one of the two things that's going to happen. Oh, this is actually a remake of a film of the same name, Angels in the Outfield, that came out in 1951. And the version that came out in 1951 focused on the Pittsburgh Pirates because it was before the Anaheim Angels existed as a team. Okay. Wow, I didn't uh, know this, that this was happening in 1951. Wow, I did not know anything <laughs> about this. Okay, I'm super, like, interested. Continue. Yeah. So the premiere of that film, the 1951 version, and this version of the film actually happened at the Pirates' former home of Three Rivers Stadium, which was hosting the 1994 MLB All-Star Game. So they premiered at the same exact place, you know, almost 50 years apart, 43 years apart. Fucking cool, right? That's super fucking weird. That's super cool. Yeah. Absolutely. Other fun facts about this film. This movie was made by the Disney Company in 1993 and came out in 1994. Two years after this film was released, Disney actually bought out the Angels and they became the Disney Angels. 
What the fuck? So it so in the time that Disney owned the Anaheim Angels from 1996 to 2003, they made a lot of upgrades to Angel Stadium. They added like a giant waterfall feature and a whole bunch of other things to the stadium to make it kind of similar to their mm. parks. They had their their Imagineers who pretty much exclusively work for Disney, like true Disney projects. Right. Had the Imagineers like think up some ways to make the Angels Stadium more profitable, basically. So they went through Angel Stadium. They looked at all the free space and changed a bunch of things. They gave it a water feature. They did this. They did that. They added some Disney merchandise. Like they started incorporating Mickey before Mickey Mouse was incorporated into all of Major League Baseball. They incorporated him specifically into the Angels gear. So you could buy like Mickey Mouse's with little angels jerseys on and stuff like that. That's awesome. Yeah. And it actually is really cool. It goes back to, I guess, when the angels were founded, Walt Disney was actually a shareholder in the original Anaheim Angels. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So the idea for Disney and the reason that Disney bought them out basically in 1996 was because Disney was struggling with Anaheim being just a regular city and not a tourist destination. Like so far at this point in 1996, Anaheim had Disneyland, but that was it. Like there was no other reason to to visit Anaheim. It was not a tourist destination. And the Angels weren't necessarily any good. Like they were just some random baseball team. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, the Disney company as a whole went through this huge, huge makeover of the city of Anaheim. They worked with their city contractors and all these different major companies that were in and around Anaheim, California to rework the entire city as a vacation destination. So like, okay, you're going to come here with your family for Disneyland, of course, and you're going to stay your one day in the park or whatever, but we want you to do the other things that are available around Anaheim. Like we want you to go to a baseball game and we want you to do this and we want you to, you know, eat food and do all these things. So they kind of, they worked with the city to make all of Anaheim more of an experience, I guess, to reflect the Disney brand. And I mean, it worked. People went and saw the Angels. Yeah, it absolutely worked. This movie boosted the Angel sales for at least a year, probably a couple of years. And then by the time that Disney actually bought them and owned them, like people were way into the Angels because this movie had kind of blown up. Two actors in this film who played other baseball players on the Angels team went on to win Best Actor Oscars. So, So fun fact, if you haven't seen this movie in a long time, watch it again and see if you can like pick out the people who went on to be famous after they got out of this film because you will peep a very young Adrian Brody who won (gasps) his Oscar from The Pianist and you will also peep a very very young Matthew McConaughey who won his Oscar from Dallas Buyers Club. What the fuck? Yeah, they both play on the Angels. And you will also see another actor named Neil McDonough, who, if you don't recognize him by name, you will likely recognize his face. He plays a pitcher on the Angels, and he's really, really dumb in this movie. Like, he's kind <laughs> of the, the goofball, like, just stupid 
player on the team. He does all he does all the like Chris Farley, like, I don't know, action dumb, like, oh, I slipped and fell and bumped my head. Right, right, right. In the The whole, yeah. But later in his career, he became a very, very serious actor and is often cast as a bad guy. What I recognized him from immediately was the movie Walking Tall with The Rock. If you've never seen that movie, it's basically The Rock comes back from, I don't know, time in the military and he comes back to his hometown and his town has gone to shit because a local casino has taken over the town and basically ruined it. Um, mm. And they're like forcing all the businesses to close and all the money is funneled through the casino. Well, the owner of the casino is Neil McDonough and The Rock basically has to go against him and beat his ass to get the town back. And it's a good movie. Okay, okay. Nice. Yeah, so basically there's 100 people in this movie and you recognize probably most of them. It's a great fucking film. Yeah, It is... <laughs> I don't know if I would go as far to say that it's a family sports fantasy comedy drama film. Like, that's a fucking <laughs> mouthful. It's a lot. It's a lot. But family sports fantasy, yes, there we go. Because <laughs> comedy and drama, like, you didn't need that descriptor because it's already added in to the family. Like, when you say it's a family film, you expect there to be comedy drama, right? Right. That's just part of family films. That's what it is. So the family, sports, and fantasy are definitely part of it. Okay, so have you seen this film? Yes, I've seen this film, but the last time I watched this movie probably was with you. Like, I probably watched it. Yeah, like, I probably watched it when we were hella fucking young. I remember watching it a whole lot when it first came out because... I was four, obviously, when it was made, and, like, I remember watching it, and I remember watching it over and over and over again, but I don't know. It was probably a couple years of that, and then I probably stopped, and then I, like, literally never watched it again, so I remember the plot of it. I remember, like, the bigger moments of it, but I didn't remember the, like, plot points of, like, the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was you know, the foster kid who was trying to get his dad. I remembered it was something to do with the family and that he was trying to get the win for his family, but I couldn't remember like what it was about that he was trying to do it for. And I also couldn't remember whether or not the angels had helped in the actual championship or not. I remembered the moment of them not being there, but I couldn't remember if that was like a part in their like journey where the angels like suddenly were gone and then they like come back in the championship or if that was the actual championship, like I couldn't remember. Yeah, like I definitely had watched it, but it's been a long ass time for sure. Would you watch it again based on my drunken explanation of what this story is about? A gazillion percent. I would probably watch (laughs) it again. Absolutely. Especially when I have kids, because like I will probably like play that movie for my kids and like just laugh my ass off at all the people that like I know who eventually grow up to become huge ass actors that my kids just will never know until they get like super older. And by then they'll be so old that like watching shit like Inception or, you know, fucking how to lose a guy in 10 days for Matthew McConaughey or, you know, like all that other crazy shit, like Doc Brown or whatever, he'll be long ass gone. 
having to show my kids the Back to the Future series or whatever is just like, yeah. oh my God, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. But yeah, I would definitely watch it again. I probably won't watch it again until I have kids, to be honest. <laughs> Not yeah. because I don't want to, but because A, I don't have time and like B, when I do have time, like I'm always doing something else in my yeah. time. It's like a kid's this, movie. You like don't need to watch podcast. it unless you have a kid. Right. Yeah. The interesting thing about baseball movies in the 90s, there were about 17 billion baseball movies that came out in the 90s. And Mm. it's really... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really interesting that so many films about baseball came out at that time because, like, when I was a kid, I'm the exact right age for this film to, like, hit home. Like, I was seven when this movie came out. Yeah, I would say six or seven or something like that. And I loved it. And I loved like what Major League and I loved Little Big League and all of those. That was like right when you were becoming like tomboyish, like you were suddenly not being super girly anymore. And you were like, hell yeah, yeah, sports. Hell yeah, baseball. Yeah. But I will say, so I loved films about sports and I loved playing sports but Mm -hmm. you could not pay me as a child to sit down and watch a baseball game fair yeah there was nothing like for the life of me I was trying to remember this as a kid like (laughs) put myself in place of being a kid again and I could not for the life of me understand why adults wanted to watch people play baseball which at the time was the slowest most second most at the time it still is literally still is (laughs) like i couldn't understand for the life of me as a kid why people wanted to watch baseball rather than going outside with me and playing catch like right let's go play baseball why are we fucking sitting here watching passive other people active Yeah, why are we sitting here watching people stand around for hours to do this instead of just going and fucking playing? Like, let's go do it. And I couldn't understand it for the life of me. And as an adult, now I enjoy watching baseball. But there's something about sports movies, how they have to compact like a whole bunch of games into a short amount of time. That just Mm -hmm. makes it so much more enjoyable that I think we need to bring back into movies. Like, I don't know. I haven't seen a quality sports movie, especially about baseball, in quite a while. Like, The Rookie was, like, the last one that I can remember. And that was, like, I don't know, 2003 or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I was almost a teen or potentially a teen. Yeah, and that was the same kid that was in, like, A Kid in King Arthur's Court or whatever. It's been a long-ass time since there's been a movie about baseball to get people into it. And it sucks because I feel like now is the time when people should be getting into sports. Like, we should have things that get kids into sports. Right? We need to make more movies about sports for kids. That's not just football. Because... Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. The the other sports out there besides football, like you can be a badass fucking athlete and not have to be like a huge linebacker who likes to, you know, knock people out for a living. Yeah. But these movies, like the movies that came out in the 90s about baseball were that happy medium that I found with our family. Like it was playful enough and fun enough that I enjoyed it as a kid. And was baseball centered enough that my family, who would rather sit and watch a baseball game, 
also enjoyed watching it. Like there were these nice tie-ins that helped all of these like family oriented sports movies that came out in the 90s and early 2000s were really, really great. And I hope that someday soon we get a lot more of them. Yeah, no, I agree. I uh, I miss like the type of sports movies like Remember the Titans or yeah, absolutely. The like Angels in the Outfield type of movies that were like, it was about the story. It wasn't about the sport. It was about the people involved in the sport. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. like how the sport was just the setting for what the yeah. story really was, you know, because that's really what it's all about when we play sports like yeah we're playing a game but we're people playing a game and so when we're doing that like what is the point of watching just a game get played like I can go you know anywhere and fucking do that I can go to a high school and watch kids play football I can go to a I don't know (laughs) the community center and watch like people play chess or whatever the game itself is not the draw unless you want to play it the yeah people involved in it the story behind what's going on in the game is what the draw is when you have a sports movie or a sports story you know like there are a bunch of sports books out there too so definitely concur yeah okay that's that's, uh angels in the outfield and beowulf (laughs) oh my god we did our first episode Yep, that was a lot. That was a whole lot. Yeah, so if you stuck it out this long, thank you so much for listening to our really, really long podcast. We love Uh, you so much. We are real lit. And (laughs) you can find us on the Allentown Network. If you want to tweet at us, you can find us at Allentown Pod. If you want to email us, you can email us at allentownpresents at gmail.com. And we've got a Facebook at Allentown Presents. And when you like talk to us on Twitter and the other stuff and just like mention Real Lit, if you are talking about us and not like one of the other Allentown podcasts or whatever, so that like it's easy for them to like differentiate between what the messages are. Yeah. Hashtag Real Lit. Yep. Hashtag Real Lit. It's real and it's lit. (laughs) Yes, that (laughs) is true. It is both real and lit and it is real lit simultaneously. And also outside of the story because Katie and I are just amazing and drunk AF. Uh, yeah, I've had a lot. <laughs> oh, I almost forgot. We forgot to give a shout out to our artist. Uh, thank you so much, Susan Dorda, for making our beautiful artwork. We love you so much. You can find her work at www.susandorta.com S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com Thank you so much, Susan. We love you. Bye. Love you. I love you.